This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by Francisco Rocco, one of our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling. And hey, if you enjoy this show and would like to get access to a whole lot of extra content from myself and Joe, as well as supporting the show and help keep it ad free and listener supported, head over to patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling, become a $5 backer and get access to all of our lovely side series, including over 100 pay-per-view reviews from WWE, AEW, etc., as well as our pay review classic series roads to the top the the big show 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 how to revisit it and so much more all this and more available for just five dollars a month with a minimum of two new pieces of content each and every month all right enough talking it's time to get down to business talk about more money now it's time for how to jbl Friends, and welcome to the episode of How to Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling. And I use that phrase with the addendum warts and all. Hello, everyone, it's me, your old pal, Captain Kevin Mann, joined as I am always by my fellow acolyte for describing wrestling things. Joe Graham. Hello. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you doing? I am very happy. Just realised as we started, this is the first main timeline episode that we have done here since we've gotten engaged. Oh, yeah. I don't want to use the word fitting because it's absolutely No, not at all. Uh, If you want to know all the the behind-the-scenes scandal and goss and must-hear news, listen to Kevin and Joe shoot on their engagement at patreon.com slash howtowrestling. (laughs) Folks, it's too hot for SoundCloud. (laughs) How are you doing as a former girlfriend turned fiancé? Very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Except it's hard trying to get married. Is it? Yes. I mean, yeah, I should probably say, is it? Of course it you is. You know it is. Yeah. I know it is. I'm actively living it right now. We're trying to elope and it's fucking hard. It's too difficult. Stephanie and Triple H make it look easy. I know, because when we got announced our engagement, mm-hmm. thank you everyone for all the, we had so many lovely messages yep. via HowTo and our personal Twitter profiles. Everyone's saying nice things and I really appreciate that. And there was a lot of really nice little wrestling wedding references like, oh, don't let this guy show up, you know, Eric Bischoff, mm-hmm. you know, or careful doesn't happen to you, happen to Stephanie, yeah. you know, double wedding, triple wedding there, making sure that it's not a black wedding that we're going to have. Yeah. No one's going to be tied to a symbol. Uh-huh. And now I think about all the wrestling weddings I was rolling my eyes at and going, oh, that's very funny. But they make it seem very easy in the world of wrestling by comparison. They make it seem so easy. Here, you have to give a 30-day notice and then you can only get married in an officially approved venue which is as a license a license so you can't get married in your own house yeah no no, no renee and john yeah, moxley idealistic no, backyard wedding here no. i read that book and i got all romantic and it's a fucking yeah. sellout it's a cop-out is what it is can't rent out the village hall can't rent out a restaurant or a hotel you have to go to an approved licensed venue you are which... sounding a little bit like vince mcmahon now it's like oh you'll get your wedding joe graham once you let your notice go for 30 days, 
in my approved arena and Pat Patterson's going to be the officiating. No. You're not saying that I'm Vince then, you're saying England is England Vince. England is Vince. Yeah. You know, which I think is a, is a decent enough analogy for most of the world to get their head around. Yeah, that's England, apt. England is Vince McMahon. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously, Joe, the only way to get your head off arranging to be married woes mm-hmm. is to settle in with a nice piece of shit in the world of wrestling. And today we're talking all about the self-proclaimed wrestling god financial analyst former fox news and nbc correspondent the founder of layfield energy and mama joanna energy drinks none other than john bradshaw layfield aka bradshaw aka john slash justin hawk brackets bradshaw joe what did you know about this guy before we settled into our episode because i think you may have had some experience with him I have. I am aware of JBL because he is on the pre-show panel. Oh, jeez, he is, isn't he? Yes. We've watched a fair share of those in recent years. Yeah, so that's what I know him from, is those. And I hated him for a long time. And then Pete Rosenberg started showing up on them. And then it became really obvious that they hated each other. And that brought me some semblance of joy. So you were watching him... You know, him and Rosenberg, what was their interaction like? Were they just like, what, like bouncing off each other, loads of great witty remarks? Uh... No, Rosenberg is just like, I don't particularly love Rosenberg. I don't really have any feelings for him either way. But he was just like there talking, living his best life or whatever. He always seems quite happy. But JBL, you can just tell he hates him. How could you tell if someone like JBL like hates someone? What are the telltale signs? Well, it's the same sign as if anyone hates anyone else, which is that he literally turns his back to him. <laughs> and it, the way they seat them on the panel is, it's I, I'm convinced Vince is involved with this because it goes like Booker T on the left. You might have Jerry Lawler next to him. Yeah. Then in the middle you have whoever it is conducting. Kayla yeah, Taylor Braxton, yeah. that Irish guy whose name I forget, who's very good. Kevin Patrick. Him. Then you get JBL, and then next to him you get Rosenberg. So Rosenberg's on the end. And it feels very intentional because JBL just, like, cuts off that part of the table. So it's kind of like, you know, in school, basically, like, at the end of the table, like, this person's kind of not going to be considered part of the clique. Yeah, exactly. Rosenberg doesn't get to wear pink, basically. Except Rosenberg doesn't seem to give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Because he is incapable of feeling sad on a WWE broadcast because of his very nature. Maybe, or maybe he realises that he doesn't particularly care about being part of a club that contains Jerry Lawler, JBL, and Booker T. Yeah, truly legends of our time, landmark titans in the sport. Oh no, are they going to be slightly unincluded? to me what a shame i love their company so much so you knew him then as being kind of like a caustic i guess member of the pre-show panel do you remember him being a commentator when we very first started watching for 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 patreon reviews back in the day no yeah he was uh he was a commentator on on i believe smackdown he was with Mauro Ronaldo briefly. He was also with Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler at one point as well. Okay. So it's interesting that he didn't impart that much of a memory on you in terms of him being a commentator. Because yeah. that was probably what he was mainly around for in those earlier years. Was he good? Um, um, no, then. He no. was. A, I mean, here's the thing. I maintained all throughout those periods of us watching him and him being not very good that he used to be good. And then we did a thing called Boys Picks for the Attitude Era podcast where we went back in time and reviewed the very shows where I thought in my mind at the time that he was good. And it turns out he wasn't as good as I remembered. So, no, I guess is, is my re- response to that. Yeah. What What did you know about him, though, in relation to like him in WWE? Did he seem like kind of, you know, I don't know, one of Vince McMahon's guys or anything oh, yeah, like I that? Oh, yeah, I assume... 
I always assume, maybe wrongly, that anyone on those pre-show panels is one of the Vince McMahon guys because they all seem to have very sweet legends contracts. Ah, yes. They get to wear these fancy suits. They come out with their fucking hundred thousand dollar Rolexes. And I know JBL is dressed like a fucking corpse most of the time. Like yeah, but like been, an, expen- an expensive corpse. Like, yeah, like they've done him up with the formaldehyde and made him yeah. look pretty at all. <laughs> yeah, the morticians put his time in. But yeah, what I know about him as a wrestler. In WWE is from seeing little bits of like Smackdown Crawl that you yeah. guys do for the Astrodera podcast. Because I do remember there was a point where you were on, you know, looking on the screen and there was like a former version of Bradshaw because this is a character who's been through a lot of different iterations. Yeah. And I remember saying, like, oh, that's your man from the pre show panel. Yeah. Was that a strange moment for you at all? Yes, because... So the bit I'm talking about is when he's in the APA yeah. with Farouk. Mm-hmm. And the look is very different from the current iteration of JBL. He's got like a goatee and dyed black hair <laughs> and like piercings and Fashion, stuff. Fashion, baby. Yeah, it's, it's just like very different from the clean-cut conservative character, or not character, I guess, real-life persona that he lives in so were you you know from that point then before we got into an episode did you view him as being like well he's obviously a good old rootin tootin texan who plays a conservative guy on tv sometimes or was it the case that he was a conservative guy who used to play a rootin tootin texan on tv right so this is again <laughs> another way in which the attitude era podcast has kind of infiltrated my knowledge of things and i'm very sorry for that honey one of my first associations of jbl was his book more money now ah yes that is sitting on the shelf as a potential yeah. review at some point yeah i believe it got mentioned as a potential crossover for how to because, because you got big into reading self-help books and I've like always, rich dad poor dad i've stuff. always liked reading self-help books not to take them seriously just for anyone listening thinking i take rich dad poor dad seriously i don't i like I like mocking them in my mind, reading them, taking the bits of advice that work, that are transferable across all lives, and then laughing at the bits that's like, manifest your dream life. Manifest more money now with John Bradshaw Layfield. And I was, you know, I've always been interested in personal finance as well. And JBL is like a legitimate, successful businessman. Mm. So... I've, you know, when I heard he had a finance book, I genuinely did want to read it because I'm sure there are interesting things in there. I guarantee you we will be doing that. I think that is a crossover Gosh. of sorts that is definitely going to happen. Well, it's said on this podcast now, so you can't go back. It's absolutely confirmed, 100%. It's going to be happening. I have to read a book for fucking Attitude Era podcast at the moment, and I'm not doing that shit again, so you can read the next one Yay. as far as I'm concerned. So he is someone who is kind of been around for a long long time he started his journey into wrestling in the early 90s and he does come from that kind of old school mindset i guess you could say he's someone who grew up idolizing some of the greats in texas so he always had a lot of time for the likes of dusty Rhodes. but it was more characters like stan the lariat henson who would have been you know, really impressive upon young John Layfield in the earlier days of his uh, of his childhood. His name isn't John Layfield, though, is it? No, it is his real name, John Charles Layfield. Oh, I see. So it's the Bradshaw that's fake. Bradshaw is a made-up bit. He wouldn't right. get that until later on in WWE. But, you know, as a youngster in Texas, they had football and they had wrestling. And those kinds of, you know, names that he was influenced by, the Dirty Dick Murdochs and the, the Stan Hensons and all that... I think we touched on it a little bit in like Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk, those older timey, you know, wrestlers that were in the 70s and the very early 80s. 
anything about that kind of era of wrestler that you would think would be kind of defining traits or anything like that? How do you mean? As in, like, what's the mindset of a, say, compared to the modern day, you know, that old school, someone says he's an old school wrestler from Texas. What would you think that would imply or infer? I don't really know, to be honest, because my only experience with old school wrestling was like, well, Andy Kaufman, who's not really a great example because he was so much his own thing. And Memphis, kind of a different mindset, I guess, as well, yeah. Dusty, was he from Texas? Yeah, he would have come up through there, yeah. So, I mean, again, my recollection of Dusty was that he did like a lot of like quite intense, like hardcore matches. Yeah, a lot of blood and things like that. But yeah. I'll be honest, I don't really know anything about the the Texas wrestling circuit. I'm much more familiar with Memphis. So I think Texas, a lot of the, the stuff that would kind of go hand in hand with that, particularly in that era, is that there's kind of a big crossover between sports you know, athletes who did well in football or whatever had an injury they wanted to move on to other things and wrestling there was kind of a flow in between the two they also like to kind of fashion themselves as being like legitimate tough men in inverted commas so this is kind of a scene where there would have been things like hazing and people being uh snug in the ring but that's not just a texan thing though is it that's that's a, oh, that's other parts of the world as well. as well. Like, yeah. But like, you know, people like Stan Henson, for instance, whose finisher would have been the Lariat. You know, a clothesline. We see those in a hundred times in a match usually. But this guy would lean back and he'd give you a proper boom, like a big fucking massive shot. Mm. It's, it's obviously more like in Japan, I guess there's a lot of that as well, where the idea of you of someone being hit harder is therefore better or whatnot. Yeah. So John came up through football and he was a standout athlete in his high school and at college and he was picked up to be a professional footballer and he was drafted to the Raiders, the same team that Jim the Anvil Neidhart was drafted to as well. But he never actually was used as a... He was only a free agent. He never actually got to be a professional footballer. So he was signed but never actually competed. Mm. So he went on and decided to pursue his other great passion in life, which was wrestling. Fun fact for you, Joe, John Layfield's mum and dad, uh, his dad's a minister, and he was brought up in a strict Christian household. Oh, wow. I don't know if that would have been something I could have guessed remotely from studying him here today. I wouldn't have guessed it based on how controversial he is. But it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So he is starting off and he's trained by a guy called Black Bart, who again would have been that kind of old, you know, cowboy style wrestler, you know, hit him hard, treat him mean, keep the fans keen, etc, etc. And he was working for a group called the Global Wrestling Federation and he went off to Japan for a little bit. Now, being a big old Texan in Japan, how do you reckon that goes down? I imagine it goes down very well. <laughs> Why? Well, just because of the bits we've read in Brett's book. Yeah. He, I think it's Brett's book, or is it maybe Mick Foley's book? They both talked a bit about it, yeah. Yeah, they've they've mentioned wrestlers, um, the idea of gaijin wrestlers in Japan, which is like the idea of like, there being a character type there in wrestling of a large American or Western person. Right. Kind of playing the foreign heel right kind of like the equivalent of what we have here in the west (laughs) but the other way around and it's it's interesting because there is like a succession of like successful big men who went to japan and they were known for hitting hard and that is like kind of you know a lot of legends came out from that you know people like stan henson we mentioned vader is another guy who would have went over to japan and was just kind of because he was a big dude and he was mean and he treated people like shit and you know he hit people hard he was revered as being like a god so 
Bradshaw went over there to Japan and he didn't really make an impact in, in the sense that he wasn't like a big, big name or anything like that. But he, you know, he obviously picked up some of the ethos and he was trying to live like his idol, Stan Henson. He comes back and he does a little bit more touring around the world. He finds himself in Mexico in CMLL. And this is why I was busting to tell you earlier on today, Joe. His name when he was in CMLL was Vampiro Americano. <laughs> So the American vampire. The American vampire. Amazing. Okay. Did he... Was his gimmick a vampire? No, he wore like face paint like the ultimate warrior. Oh, okay. But that was just about it, really. He came out and he was just a big galoo. And was like, yeah, there he is. The American vampire right. there. Okay. An American vampire in Tijuana. It's the sequel that we never knew that we wanted, Joe. Yeah. So he was known at that point as John Hawk. And because this is like 1993... The WWF is going through a bit of a change at the moment. You know, I mean, think back to our pay-per-view classics. What could have been happening in 1993? 1993, the steroid trial would have either been ongoing or just concluded. Yes, so there's obviously going to be a bit of a change of pace in terms of the types of guys they're getting. So gone are the big steroid lads of of yesteryear. Mm. They're trying to bring in more kind of natural-looking athletes. Plus... Start of the rivalry between WCW and WWE. Would I be mean, then? I would say though '95 would have been when that right. really kicked off, but they still would have been competing, you know, against yeah. each other at the time, and people were going kind of back and forth and all that. So the idea of him is that you know Vince saw him and thought, you know, this guy could be a superstar. He's a big fucking strong guy. He's fucking huge. Like he is broad. I would say he is a horse, perhaps, is a fine way You're to describe You're just copying Jim Ross. I mean, I would also, if I'm copying Jim Ross, say he's all man and a yard wide. That's the way huh. to describe him. But Vince took an early liking to him and he wanted to bring him in. he's big. And he's not just big. He's tall. He's really tall. Yeah, I think that's got to play a part in it. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Vince likes you if you're tall. Yeah. Do you think Vince would like me? No. But I'm tall. Yeah, but you're not like a wrestler. Ah. So he'd hate you. Ah. He'd probably make fun of me behind my back or to my I face I think he'd want something. to fucking avoid you like the plague. You'd make his boys look bad. He wouldn't like you as well, I'm sure. He wouldn't like either of us. Why you wouldn't know? he like me? Because sometimes you sneeze, you know? And oh, I sneeze a lot, actually. He doesn't like that at all, Joe. And I yawn a lot. Oh, oh my God. Oh, He'd fucking hate me. Absolutely. I wonder if you think the politics of the man... Because he becomes good buddies with, with Vince quite quickly, apparently. Right. Do you think Vince is the type of guy where it's like, the politics are right? I don't think Vince talks about politics. Those politics suck, man. Considering how political uh, his life is, I don't think Vince ever talks about politics. But like, I always find it very interesting that the people are like, politics suck, man. Why are we talking about politics? They often very, very... More often than not, they very much seem to be like very well-to-do businessmen yeah. who, who love capitalism. And that is, I guess, politics in a sense, Vince, you know? <laughs> well, I think as a business owner, uh, most savvy business owners are aware that talking politics can alienate your half of your, your customer base. That's true, yeah. So a lot of the kind of like more manipulative, more savvy, more capitalist business owners don't talk politics for very selfish reasons. Yeah, because they don't want other people... If they're talking about politics, that means other people might talk about politics. Yeah, and it means you have to have, like, you know... It means then people might disagree with your politics and then you're not making as much money. It's much easier to kind of exist as this fence sitter of, oh, we don't believe in, you know, any politics, but also we believe in all the good politics. (laughs) 
but yeah, lifelong Republican is John Layfield. So yeah, I think he, me. him and Vince were, were were good pals, I'd say, from the get-go. But yeah. he finds himself, you know, kind of a little bit adrift because there's a lot of new young guys who've been brought in at this point in time. And this is a period of time when there are like pirates and clowns in the wrestling show. So Justin Hawk Bradshaw, as he's brought in as, he's just kind of like a big Texan, you know, he's got his cowboy hat and his chaps and his big rope. He would brand people after his match. But, but like, actually... I mean, not actually. I don't think he's, like, Terry Funk-like, you know. But I think they would get a little bit of, like, red marker on his brand and go, uh, Ah, there you go. You got the JB on you now. You've been branded for a day. Nothing uh, gets that okay. out. <laughs> I mean, I'd much rather take the felt-tip marker branding than I would take a Terry Funk scalding, flaming branding iron. But that's just me. I think everyone would. Yeah. So... I don't think that's just you. Not just me? No, okay. <laughs> So, he's a young, handsome man without much to go on. No, he's not. He's a young, handsome man. He's young. He's not handsome. He's always been 50 years old. You can see, <laughs> we watched WWE Untold APA. Yeah, which and, was a nice little doc, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and you see JBL in his like late teens, and he is already 50 years old. You were saying to me when we were watching some of this early footage of him kind of flying around a bit as, uh, as old Hawk... That he would look good with a moustache. Well, I hate to correct you, but it was actually current day JBL I was saying he'd look good with a moustache. Oh! Old JBL already had a moustache in the APA. I mean, that's a goatee yeah, handlebar. He has a moustache as part of it. I think as an old man, he would pull off a big bushy tash. All right, I wanted to show this to you because I figured you'd get a kick out of it. I only remembered it this morning when I was mulling on this, but during this period when he was floundering, you know, he was Justin Hawk for a while. Then they put him together with Barry Windham and they made them into a tag team called the New Blackjacks, which was a revamp of this old tag team from the 70s and the 80s that worked for Vince's dad. And as part of that, he had to wear a black cowboy hat and have a big moustache. And there is Blackjack oh, Bradshaw. Oh, yeah, I've seen this before. With the big old... I mean, that's borderline Wario, Joe, I'm going to say yeah, right now. I don't like that. <laughs> Why? Because it's Wario. It's too cartoonish. It looks like it's been stuck on with tape. That's it. Like, I, I watched a lot of those matches for, for various seasons of the Out of podcast, and I was convinced that it was not a real mustache. Yeah. And I think as a wrestler, you don't want to have facial hair that's going to make a fan go up and go, and pull yeah, out and pull see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've always been lucky when I've had a mustache. It doesn't look removable. It doesn't. But I do remember we went on a date very early on in Lincoln and some guy came up and was like, whoa, is your beard real? Oh, and then he pulled Lincoln, on man. it. Yeah. And you were like, what the fuck? That really hurts. That happened in Lincoln all the time. It's fucking freaks like you would get either someone tugging it or someone like kind of ticking yeah. you under the chin or something mm-hmm. like that which is very strange and i found out in later years that's apparently considered sexual harassment for a man huh. but uh, the ball thing if i if i'm gonna throw that out i guess i have to throw out the beard stuff just don't pull on a fucking beard what the don't, hell don't touch people without their consent yeah just don't especially touch especially their face yeah. that's so gross i don't know where your fucking hands have been lay off even if their moustache looks like it's a comedy moustache, like Justin yeah. Hawk Bradshaw. <laughs> exceptions can be made for JBL. If I saw JBL with a comedy moustache, I would be tempted to pull on it. Yeah. Because he's not a very nice man. Yeah, maybe pull on it on a big string from a bit away, like, in it's the just distance. just a rib. It's just, just a rib. Just a rib, just hazing. Just protecting the business, it's Joe. Just a joke, like you make. <laughs> so... He is, as we see at the start of this, untold. He's he kind of self-admitted, like he's not got a lot of self-confidence. He claims he's a low opinion of himself. He is surprisingly modest about his early career. Yeah, because I mean, 
he did he did not have a lot going for him and it's rare that someone didn't have a lot going for them and was like he was around for at least two and a bit years before they figured kind of really anything out for him at all hmm. you know we watched a match earlier on this morning which was him and takamichinoku versus kayantai i wanted you to see him like being a big hoss but he seemed a little bit like out of sorts i yeah, guess you know definitely. a bit nervous yes it's weird seeing him like be that way you know he doesn't have a look of confidence to him and i think that even continues on into the apa Mm. one of the things that kind of shocked me most about seeing the clips from the apa was how confident farouk was and how jbl was just in his shadow because a lot of the time because of uh, Farouk, Ron Simmons, he was a former world champion in WCW. You know? Oh, really? Yeah, he was the first ever black world heavyweight champion. Wow. So he had quite a storied career. And he was brought into WWE and maybe not given the best gimmick. Uh, we will be doing an episode on Ron Simmons, but Joe did get to see a little peek at Farouk's gladiator gear. Gladiator, you will remove your helmet because it makes you look like a fucking idiot. Yeah, it's shit. <laughs> Why is it blue? I've no idea, it's Joe. Like a DC villain from the comics. I would say, like, you know, it's your typical neither man had anything going for them. But you had a guy who probably didn't believe in himself that much. And you had a guy who definitely viewed himself as a star. And I've known always that they were friends. But I would say I was actually taken aback by how close they were yeah. and how it came across in this. These lads. More so than any, I mean, other tag team I can think of have a real actual kinship going here, it feels like. Yeah, so they had actually ridden in car shares together for, I think, for like two years. They were road pals. They were road pals before they got teamed up as the APA. And when they, before they got teamed up, JBL was really surprised that Ron didn't really have a gimmick. Because like, the gladiator thing is shit. He did the Nation of Domination, but they kind of wound that down then Farouk was just kind of like a guy on the roster so it was kind of like you know your typical all right he's nothing going on he's nothing going on I will throw them together apparently Russo was the one who first kind of pitched the idea of sticking the two of them together because he was always very big on if anyone seemed to have a bit of chemistry in the backstage he'd be like all right you guys banter or whatever let's stick you together because if you have chemistry as friends Ergo, you'll have chemistry as tag team partners. So the first time they were put together, they weren't the APA. Because the A- do you know what the APA stands for? The Acolyte Protection Agency. So yeah, they were originally the Acolytes. So when I first started watching wrestling, these were the, the, the kind of the two evil henchmen of The Undertaker. Oh! So Undertaker had his own group called the Ministry of Darkness, who are all what these... random people to team up with him. I know, right? And he, he, they were just kind of like his... They would stand beside him looking ominous when he was like abducting wrestlers and making them drink his blood to become part of his ministry. They would stand and guard the door and stuff like that, looking very intimidating in tight tops, etc. Okay. So before they were actually paired up with The Undertaker, the original idea of it was that they were going to be paired up with the Jackal, who you might know as Don Callis. Oh, I love Don Callis. Yeah, Don Callis was put together with them and it didn't last very long. It lasted, I think, one night, maybe two. He grabbed the headsets as they beat up people and he said, all you need to know about this group, JR, is that violence turns me on. And that was the end of that. There were allegations around this time that started to surface. And this was the first time that I can, the earliest I can see back of bullying. And Don Callis was one of those people 
who was saying that he was experiencing bullying from JBL. Bradshaw. So what, what, what bullying happened? The typical stuff, and it is difficult to find out a lot about this. And I'm, I'm not sure if this surprises you or not, but a lot of wrestlers are embarrassed to talk about their bullying I'm not experiences. Not surprised at all. You know, I was bullied throughout school, and you know, I feel kind of like. Not necessarily embarrassed, but kind of like, I feel like it's unnecessary sometimes to bring it up and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And like, it's no reflection on my profession or my my personal standing that I was bullied. But a lot of wrestlers are kind of like, they don't want to say, hey, I was bullied back in the 90s because I was a young guy and I didn't know what to do. But the type of thing they would do would be, or that he would do, you know, he'd take your bags, he'd put a padlock on them. They would key your your rental car, so you have to pay a fine on that job. You know, they would take all your stuff and throw it in the shower. Like, fucking, I don't want to be like, oh, you know, locker room pranks, because I feel like it's making light of it. But, like, it's interesting you say that, because, like, honestly, when you said two out of those three things, my first thought was Owen Hart, who I'm pretty sure did the exact same thing of throwing someone's bag in a shower. I'm pretty sure he also put a lock on someone's bag. I think the difference is is in the targets. Right. Because Owen, I feel, would always do it with someone who's kind of like in a position of power or whatnot. But like the main place I remember hearing about Bradshaw's bullying would have been in like the Hardy Boys in their book. They talked about, you know, when they first, first got signed and they were like really super young and naive and all that. And Bradshaw would come up to them and be like, all right, boys, you got an assignment this weekend. You have to go over and like knock over a load of mailboxes with a fucking baseball bat beside the arena. And they'd be like, uh, what do we do? And then like, they show up the next week and he's like, did you do it? And they're like, uh, no. And then it's like, oh, you're in big trouble now. I'm going to go tell Undertaker. And it's like, all so right. So the Undertaker is contributing to this as well then. Because like, this is the thing. I don't believe that bullying in corporations can exist in a vacuum. Yes. Like, I know. There's I always a hierarchy. There's always a hierarchy yeah. and there's always people going, <laughs> and like encouraging the bully to do it bullies don't do things without attention from other people they don't they don't do it without an audience and that's the thing as well is like there's so very often cases here where it feels like jbl where bradshaw is like is put with say he didn't put with don Callis, and it's like oh there's bullying stuff or whatever it is so it's like okay instead of dealing with the victim we're just going to like kind of shift over the bully so he's in a more comfortable spot that he won't maybe annoy that person as much but like it's like being in school yeah i mean there's like a lot of people who just kind of much like in school i mean i'm sure you can think of a countless list of folks who were bullied and then you know they just moved into another school yeah or the bully was moved into another school yeah let's just move things around and that will fix it not our problem anymore but wwe seems to be kind of hell-bent on keeping the bullies because i personally believe that vince mcmahon would have known about hazing and it wasn't just bradshaw but i think that he thought it was good for the locker room right because bradshaw's been asked about this period of time you know the, the late 90s or whatever and he said that he thought that he was protecting the business because certain people didn't belong in the business. And who decides that? And obviously that? JBL is the best person to decide that. But he's like, no, he wouldn't be doing it himself. He, he's doing it though for the vague, kind of for the veterans. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think stuff like that is like so strange because... He's not even a fucking veteran. He's no, but he's doing wrestler. it. He's doing it for The Undertaker, who is a veteran, right? Yeah, that's just... But honestly, like, I already didn't think much of JBL, but this makes me think so little of The Undertaker. Because he's not the ringleader because, or anything, you know? No, and also, like... You know, we are reading Brett's book at the moment and Brett goes on about how The Undertaker is the single most respectful man in the business Mm -hmm. and is willing to go over for anyone. And he is such a role model and he is the veteran of the company. And here he is fucking being the biggest bully of all. But I think 
part of that is that Undertaker, I don't think he's like, y'all should go bully this guy. Go on, Bradshaw. No, do it but to him. it's just as bad to be like, huh, you bullied these kids. Because <laughs> nice. it's, it's, I think, and this happened, I felt this happened in my school a lot, where there would be like kind of, you know, a top dog kid or whatever it is, or a few of them. Yeah. And then there'd be kind of people a tier below who think, the, the top... I'm going to do stuff to impress yeah. them and think they are endorsing me but to do it. The top bully is clever enough to know they can manipulate people into doing their bullying for them so that they don't get in trouble. And that mm. really pisses me off. So I kind of feel like him early on, it's like, oh, right, we're going to do you with Don Callis, you and Farouk with Don Callis, and that doesn't work. And then him being stuck with The Undertaker, even though they were kind of glorified henchmen, I think for them, they were absolutely delighted with this with this position that they were in because in their mind, they're close to the seat of respect and power, which is The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. He is, And it's so weird saying that we're talking about a guy who in kayfabe was abducting people and conducting black weddings. But like, there is kind of a, an orbit around him, I guess, for lack of a better oh, term. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know? I don't really understand it. But there is. The I, fact that like Brett of all people is like fucking worshipping at the feet of Mark Calloway is so weird. I think there is this like like the water cycle or the carbon cycle, or then there's something like that. And Wrestler's Court is there somewhere. Yeah. And like hazing and bullying and shit like that is somewhere in there as well. And I think they all feed into each other that yeah. makes this kind of toxic cycle of protecting the business. Well, great fucking job. You've protected the business. You got rid of, you know, it's funny you think of like someone like Don Callis run away from the company because of it being a shitty backstage atmosphere. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like there's always lost potential there. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So the Acolytes, they've got drawns on their chest, Joe. And I wanted to pick your brain about what they had written on them. Well, the only one I recognized was the Homestuck symbol. <laughs> What's the Homestuck symbol? Is well, it's not interest? the Homestuck symbol. It's a. I feel like that's a. Them. There's many symbols in Homestuck. Surely mm, you're correct. I know nothing of Homestuck, and you assure me that lots of people will understand this reference. No, I said the opposite of that. I said <laughs> I said I shouldn't say this. No one will understand, and the people that do understand will dislike me for saying it. The Homestuck symbol is of Gamzee, the Juggalo murderer clown. So there you go. That's the it's the zodiac symbol. The you know what, Joe? I'm not even going to follow up on that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we'll have to do. A, a, I mean, we'll have to do an episode about Juggalo Championship Wrestling before we can really tease that apart, as yeah, far as exactly. I could tell. So I was always obsessed with these as a kid. Like I used to like try and draw them in my notebook, what the symbols were, what I thought they meant. Were they kanji? Said the man who didn't understand. Was it Arabic? That was oh my on god! Them? So what? Do, tell me in kayfabe what you think these symbols are. These are acolytes of the Undertaker, and there's other shit written on their pecs. I would guess that there's some kind of like ancient summoning script for demons or something. Yeah, I, I always settle on that they were runes. They're not runes. What? Why were they not runes? Because they're not runes. Runes are a language. You can't just decide things. Wait, runes. runes are an actual language? Yes. No, like in The Witcher, when they're like, oh, there's runes over there. There's an actual, oh, yes, the, the language runes that we all know. Google it. I used to write in runes. Runes are letters in the runic alphabet of the Germanic speaking people. How about See? that? Let me I... just double check <laughs> if it's. A... Okay. Runes are similar to glyphs in The Witcher, so maybe I'm getting confused. Yeah, so they're not, uh-huh. they're oh, not runes. Oh, is your video game not real? Okay, I, you know what? I'm 33 years old, and I've once again had to come to the conclusion that nine-year-old Kevin maybe didn't know what he was talking about, <laughs> particularly in the world 
of made-up languages. <laughs> and we got as close to an explanation as possible in this untold documentary. Bradshaw was like, I used to draw a Teletubby on Ron. I thought that was really <laughs> funny. And he'd be like, what are you doing, man? Stop drawing Teletubbies and shit on me. Someone needs to find the episode of Raw or Smackdown where Ron has a Teletubby on his chest. <laughs> I need to see this. But yeah, it just seems to be random symbols. Yeah. I don't know. They, they would come off in like 10 seconds in the match as oh, well. They'd right, sweat through them, like, you yeah. know? One of them looked a little bit like the Bluetooth symbol, I thought. <laughs> so. But this is before Bluetooth, so maybe they invented it. I don't know. Maybe maybe the acolytes were contactless and we didn't yeah. realise it. Like, we just tap them and then they would do whatever. But they look dumb as shit and I hate them. You didn't like the look? No. So is it because of the, the drawing on the chest? Is that it? Yeah. I mean, I personally... What? Because why is it? Because one of them is the Zodiac symbol. Oh, is it? That's when I said the Homestuck. That's thing, the Zodiac one. It's based on the Zodiac. So okay. it's, I think it's for. It's Aries, I think, is the one. They have pentagrams on. Jeez, you know what? Now that I'm talking about it, this is probably some of the most symbol heavy wrestling. They had the runes. <laughs> they keep calling They're them runes. Not runes. They had the symbols, the symbols <laughs> on their chest. Then on their tights, they would have a pentagram. And then what? the Undertaker symbol over the pentagram. Oh my so god! So that was like a lot of. Uh... They may as well have thrown some runes in. Yeah, yeah, they had a lot going on there. I mean, yeah, runes probably. Uh, look, if you can translate the acolytes for me, I'll be a very happy man. That's all no, I'm saying. No, because the symbols don't mean anything. I mean, maybe a real Homestuck fan could get to the bottom of this. No, they don't mean anything. They're just made up. It's not real. So these are two guys who've been put together who were individually known for being more than a little bit snug in the ring. And these are also two guys who've now been put together with The Undertaker, who's in a big, huge program where he's going to take over the WWF. To say that these guys feel that they're in a position of comfort is absolutely an understatement. And the way they described it was that they were unfuckwithable. Cool. Now... What do you think unfuckwithable means as it relates to the world of this predetermined entertainment sporting contest known as professional wrestling? I imagine it means the same thing as it means in a high school, which is you can't sit with us. <laughs> Y'all can't sit with us. You're We're not allowed. Unfuckwithable. I tried to explain the unfuckwithable concept to Joe in the way I best knew how which was showing the Acolytes take on the public enemy hmm. on a banner episode of Sunday Night Heat from early 1999, and no one was missing this. I mean, I remember this being the stuff of legends when I was a kid, hearing about what happened here, that they basically ran them out of the company, the public enemy. You may remember from our ECW episode, they came that up briefly. Eagerly, yeah. You know, They were basically Paul Heyman kind of creations. Mm -hmm. Didn't get on so well in the WWE. What were your thoughts on the, I don't use the term match, because I don't have a better term for it, between uh, uh, Public Enemy and the and the Acolytes? I mean, I don't remember much about it, really. Uh, nothing really happened. There was some hard moves. Hard moves? What are hard Like, moves? Uh, stiff moves. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it was weird it for... It was rough, a lot of roughhousing. <laughs> roughhousing? Like, that kind of feels like it's like boys will be boys, acolytes will be acolytes. Well, I only say it's roughhousing because of who is involved. Right. Because it's... I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, like, a lot of instances of the acolytes versus... X, Y, Z would be roughhousing because I feel a, because they are so stiff and so huge, it could be just bullying. But because it's the who are they? The public enemy, Joe. Right, them. 
and they come from ECW and they're used to like a hard style, I feel they can take it. This is like absolutely the rationale where Vince is like on the headset saying, kill them. They can take it. Yeah. And it's odd for a match between two heel tag teams with zero build on Sunday Night Heat, a show that was not by any stretches of the imagination must-see television, mm. that we got tables, chairs, stairs, timekeepers being knocked over. Like, chair shots so wicked they bent the fucking top hard part of the chair. I don't like matches like this. It's I- not It's not a match show. It's a fucking beatdown. I don't even... But, like, I don't remember them. I mean, it's like it just doesn't stay in my head because it's like, well, I may as well watch a compilation video of chair shots. Like, what is the point of this? And I also find as well when there are a lot of wrestlers and a lot of people who will have a match that is kind of like this, except both participants are willing. When you see unwilling participants in a match like this, I mean, it just felt like the public enemy were trying their best to go along with what was unfolding before them and neither was particularly happy what was happening before them. But it gave the, you know, Bradshaw and Farouk this reputation that, like, if you come here to WWF, don't be coming here with your fucking bullshit because we'll bully you and kick you the that, fuck out I of here. I think is ridiculous and totally unnecessary. But, like, I do genuinely think, like, what did... I'm not, like, endorsing it, but, like, what did they expect? Because it's... They're wrestlers from ECW, and it's not like they're wrestlers from ECW who did flips and shit, and, you know, like, technical wrestling. They were the table guys. They were the table guys. What did you think you were being hired for? And apparently the legend is, and they kind of told it, you know, through a veil of secrecy on this dock, but they were basically told they didn't want to go through the table. They didn't want to do that part of the finish. Which I think is, like, you know, fair enough under normal circumstances, but if you've been hired by the Extreme Wrestling Company and your thing is tables... And here and you are now, WWE. And you're, like, a first match being like, no, I don't want to do my gimmick. Like, <laughs> and you're talking to Vince McMahon. Like, I'm... Well, that was it. Gerald Briscoe apparently grabbed them and he was like, they don't want to do the finish. And just kind of gave them a look which said, you know... Go out there and beat the fucking bejesus out of them. But it is weird because, like, what happens in a match like that if someone gets their arm broke or their leg broke or, like, yeah. is, is late? Like, what what happens then? Does Vince go, well, you know, we protected the business, but I'll pay off the remainder of this guy's contract now. I mean, it is, isn't it weird to think of Vince McMahon being like, well, well, well we got to protect the business now. I don't think he would say that. No, I don't think so either. Again, I think it's like the Undertaker thing. I think there's yeah, people yeah. beneath Vince who think that's what he wants, and then the people beneath them, the acolytes, think, oh, okay, that's what they want as well. It's easiest to think of it in terms of, like, the mafia. <laughs> in that Tony Soprano, as the head of that family, is never going to say to his guys, I want you to kill him. Yeah. Because that puts him in danger. That makes him... You know, if, if they're being tapped or whatever, if anyone overhears that, that makes him the villain. But he benefits from the ethos of the, o- the underlings. Sur- yeah, he surrounds himself with guys who understand what a look means. I just think, you know, from this period in WWF, which is the late 90s, you know, the late 90s, they're like, they are going public that same year that they're doing this. Like half a year after this is when they go public or close enough to it. And it's just like very strange to me. That you have this company that is trying to be like modern and new and not like Vince doesn't even like using the word wrestling at this point. He's trying to distance himself from all the old rast and that old timey stuff. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't get much more old timey wrestling than a couple of good old boys teaching the newcomers how we do things in this territory. It just feels really strange that Vince would preside over a company that at the same time as trying to be modern was still like relying heavily, it seemed, on having that old mentality to kind of keep that locker room in line i guess yeah it's I really guess so. strange yeah but they spent a while being the 
underlings of the Undertaker being nameless henchmen. They win the tag belts at one point as well. You know, they're always put over as being real strong brutes. But once the Ministry falls because the Undertaker is injured, they're kind of left without a gimmick. And this is when a fateful meeting with Vince McMahon goes very much their way, Joe. I don't think it was a meeting. I think they were... Summoned. <laughs> Summoning. So after every wrestling show, the, the guys would go and grab drinks, go meet pretty ladies, you know, take some drugs... They never, they never specifically said we were we were popping pills, but they were like, I'm pretty sure all sorts JBL of things. all but explicitly yeah. said that. Um, he said I had taken some things and was like, some things. I think he said I was fucked out of my mind. So, and then he also said that he was drinking. So, I think that says enough. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so they were doing some some of this um, at a bar somewhere, and then Vince makes one of his infamous appearances. He likes to occasionally pop in and just say hi to the boys, just to show his face. And he sees JBL and Farouk fucked up, and they're both like, shit, shit, shit. The boss is here, and we're all fucked and then he goes i want to see you two in my office um asap so they go the next day at the tvs Mm -hmm. they're pretty much convinced they're fired at this point absolutely convinced they're fired in fact so i think it's just jbl who gets summoned farouk's just like you know what just go to him tell me what he says you still got that contact in japan right yeah (laughs) yeah i think so so they go he goes into this meeting and vince is like i want you guys to have a new gimmick and i think you should just drink gamble and smoke cigars and that's it you don't even have to wrestle (laughs) not since a young sandman was approached Uh by paul Heyman. put down that surfboard yeah i have an idea for you this is fucking hey this is this is all right imagine that and then so then jbl leaves the meeting goes to farouk who's like i'll pack my bags then yeah we're going to japan and jbl's like no get this we just drink and gamble and smoke now. It is a fabulous gimmick mm-hmm. for people who had sewage. Like the reason it suited them is because that's who they were. Like, yeah, and you which know. is why Vince gave it gave that gimmick to them. I mean, we watched a few of these segments over over the course of of watching you know stuff for Bradshaw. And I know it appeared at other times as well. The APA, as they were known, the Acolyte Protection Agency, and I think this is like even if you don't have. The cards, the beer, the smoke and all that stuff, the the cool dude part of it. The idea of there in the wrestling universe, like if you're a low tier guy and you're like, oh, fuck it. You know, people are trying to get me. Those damn McMahon Helmsleys are after me again. There's somewhere you can go if Mm. you have money and pay to get a little extra help. And like it's like something in a video game, pretty yeah. much. And you could like there was in No Mercy, I remember. You could hire the APA, and That's they would so cool. watch your back. And then if you didn't hire the APA, they would beat you up instead. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I mean, this was mostly just you know, most of the time it was them kind of hanging backstage. They would do card games and stuff. They just banter, and then you know, someone would come in, a heel or a face, looking for protection. The first time their first ever customers were the Mean Street Posse. Wow. Who were complaining that everyone wanted to beat them up, so. They paid the posse, they paid the APA all their money. And the APA, when they came out, they would put on like special black gloves to signify job starting. Mm. Then they just beat everyone up, clear out the ring. It's like bounty hunters, but pretty much. Wrestling. And then be like, oh, clocking off now, job's done, take off the gloves, and they just go back straight away. Yeah, yeah there'd be times where they would like leave the heel high and dry because it's like, sorry, your time's up now, we're, we're out of here. Wow. But like, there was one of the most magic moments I remember as a kid was Takamichinoku. You know, the small Japanese superstar and Triple H was the world champion. He's like, I'm going to give this little jabroni a title shot. (laughs) 
and Taka hired the APA to watch his back so that it would be fair and it would just be Taka versus Triple H. And because of that, he, he came really close. He nearly beat Triple H. And it's like, oh, wow, these guys are like good cowboys or something like <laughs> that, you know? It works as well because John Layfield says that that he and Ron, one of the reasons they befriended each other so fast was that their wrestling styles were really similar in that they both believed in giving and taking as much as possible. So stiff in the ring, but they want it received stiff in return, supposedly. Is that, is that, is, does that make the kind of stiff mentality okay? Because I know we've, we've talked about wrestlers who I think we could just say, you're just, you're either A, careless, like the warrior, mm. or just kind of like a bit of a bully. Like, you know, I feel like there's, there's often wrestlers who, will hide behind this. Oh, I just expect it to be given back, but they're just using it as an excuse to be a bit of a sadist. But I don't really know how I feel about this because on the one hand, I love stiff wrestling. It's one of my favorites. I love strong style as well. This is the Mm. interesting thing is that in Japan, it's called strong style, but in the West, it's called being stiff. Yeah, and you can aspire like, this guy is strong style. Mm. That's kind of, oh, okay. But like being stiff, like that's an amatory thing. That's something you do because you're not a good enough wrestler. That's more of a warning than an accolade, I feel. This guy is stiff as opposed to, this guy epitomizes strong style. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's shit when people act like being stiff is something that they're willing to receive as well when they're not. Mm. But if they are willing to receive it as well, and I genuinely think the APA did because yeah. you see their matches with like the Dudley boys and those guys perfect dance partners perfect dance yeah. partners they beat the shit out of each other and then they all go and have drinks afterwards no hard feelings and I love that I think that's really nice and it's kind of healthy in a weird way for some people yeah <laughs> but I think it only works for certain body types that you mm. notice the people who always do this are huge big fucking horses it's like, like yeah okay you've got like you know what 30 pounds more muscle than the other average wrestlers and so of course you can take and receive a bit more than them it's difficult though isn't it because how do you say no then you yeah. know like how do you go actually you know my style is I don't want to hit you really fucking hard. Yeah. That's not what I do. You know, yeah. maybe I'm a you know a lucha libre. I'm more about kind of, you know, more of a spectacle as opposed to just hitting you as hard as I fucking mm-hmm. can. And there's no way then that you can negotiate that without being like, oh, you're disrespecting me. You're disrespecting the business. It's not like kind of, look, this is just how we like it. It's actually kind of like, this is it. Like it or lump it. You either hit us or you're going to get hit harder than if you hit us hard. Yeah. And I feel like that, again, is this like, snake eating its own tail bully fucking self-fulfilling prophecy of like you set up a set of rules where you're basically going to pick on the people you're going to pick on anyway with this justification yeah what's that you're going to pick on the weak people who won't hit you hard enough who you don't think belong in the business and i mean like mm. i get that but i think i know plenty of wrestlers who are fucking amazing who don't hit hard yeah and had a, had legendary careers in wrestling mm-hmm. you know i don't think you have to be that way but no, that's how think, they want to be i, I think the best wrestlers as well are the ones that manage to be stiff without causing injury like i think of asuka yeah as someone who you know i mean technically as i said she's strong style because she comes from japan but she wallops people like properly fucking beats the shit out of them and yet they're fine yeah because it's a work yeah now i think they probably are quite sore compared to a lot of other wrestlers they might be facing i took i took like kind of you know one of those shin kicks you know that you know that that, uh, from a wrestler once before and it split me open like i was like it didn't even hurt when it happened 
but like later on it was like oh my god like i've, yeah. I've just kind of torn <laughs> but like the true pros like asuka are able to do it on a sliding scale mm. and if you're a bigger opponent like say rhea ripley or yeah. charlotte someone who can take a massive beating they'll go harder than say someone who's small like, like live or whatever like yeah. live or whatever yeah, yeah. yeah so apparently one of the things about this as well with the apa and I know this kind of this would have started just as Russo was leaving, and the APA kind of went on for like a full like two year run after Russo was gone. But apparently Russo wanted to make it, and this is all I could find out from either man. He wanted to make it a race thing. In inverted commas. What does that mean? I don't really know. I watched a shoot interview with Ron Simmons once, and he was kind of like, he wanted to Russo wanted them to play off the idea of like because people would would kind of say oh you guys are like brothers you're like twins i think they wanted it to be like bradshaw was going to like think he was black or oh, something like Jesus that Christ. and i don't know how you do that and don't ruin both men's careers standing and livelihoods it's such a wwe thing right like, hoo -hoo, he thinks he's black i know i mean cringe as fuck like way to take this cool badass tag team and make it really lame i mean you know it'd be one thing even if like that was how their relationship was or something it's like, like that literally not racial at all no and i was again I have to say it, I was beyond, like, shocked. And it's probably one of the sweetest things about the man's career is, like, how close he is to Ron Simmons. Yeah. And I think Ron Simmons in his Hall of Fame speech where he was talking about, like, he never, he, you know, his dad left, you know, when he was very young and he never got to, you know, meet his brothers or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, his mum died when he was young as And well. he, he was like, I always dreamt about, like, you know, getting to, to live with or meet with one of my brothers. And he's like, that man over there is like, you know, he's my brother. And I was like, that fucking means a lot. Like, that you know. made me tear up oh. hearing him talk about, like, how he dreamed about hanging out with his brother and getting drinks with him and stuff. And he was like, well, thanks to you know john i managed to live that and that is sweet that is touching and it's i mean really like really touching also not many friendships like that in wrestling that we've you know stood no. the test of time and you also know? it was nice watching this untold because i don't think we've seen a single one which didn't have either a sad ending mm. or a sad moment in the middle where like one of them has struggles or someone dies yeah no one or no one someone has yeah. a career ending injury or mental health problems or drug addictions or something and instead it's nothing like that they just had a great friendship they genuinely loved the fuck out of each other and yeah okay they were maybe toxic within the larger workplace but the friendship they have is so sweet there's so a, nice there's another interesting little tidbit that we picked up from this which i absolutely loved now one of the first things i wanted to show joe to give her a sense of what the acolytes were all about i think we actually had seen one on a pay-per-view classic but a classic apa barroom brawl where they go in yeah, we've a, definitely covered this in yes. the Classic. So they go into a bar. Tim's bar. Yeah, and it's Tim White, you know, mm -hmm. Mr. White, that's not wise. And the way it started off was to get them over. This is like, you know, when they first started the APA, it would be like they come up and there'd be a couple of guys in there being like, ah, you phony wrestlers, you think you're so tough. Like kind of the stuff that would have happened, you know, back in the territory days. And they'd beat them up and they'd smash them all over. And that, you know, became a thing then that the posse or the Dudleys or Bossman and Bull Buchanan wanted to fight them in the bar. Now, the thing that's great about this is that, yes, it took place in the Friendly Tap, which is Tim White, the referee of Mr. White, That's Not Wise. Please listen to our How To Referees episode of fame. And he was basically guaranteed by Vince in his little pub in Rhode Island, he'd pay for any damages that were done during these barroom brawls. So apparently then 
when they'd have these brawls, Tim would be like, quick, throw him through that shit TV so we can get a widescreen. <laughs> the bar got renovated like four times yeah. over, apparently. Like On Vince McMahon's dime. Love that. That's fantastic. This is it, right? Now they don't do things like this anymore. And I think it's the principle of the thing for Vince. He, what, doesn't, he, just, he doesn't want to improve a local business. Yeah, he doesn't like. want to improve anything. So, unless it's him. His I, things. I don't know if there's any referees owning side hustles. I know there's a referee like who had a donut shop, if I recall, in Florida as well. But like, I think it's just cool, like, that little self-contained world of like, hey, Tim White is getting a little retirement fund vis-a-vis these wrestlers beating the shit out of his bar every other <laughs> week. There was a bit where, where Bradshaw was like, I was going to send uh, Bull Buchanan through this fake wall. And then he goes to me, that's the wrong wall. You see the clip of them just stumbling through a fucking door. He's like, like, too late. <laughs> <laughs> like throwing full boxes of glass bottles of beer at people, mm. putting people through pool tables. Yeah. It's a good time. I like seeing stuff like that. Yeah, it's really satisfying. It's why we play Lego. Exactly. <laughs> like the video game Lego, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. When Joe and I, right, we don't actually build Lego or anything like that. We just play Lego games. So if you've got a Lego collection, we're going to be like, smash, smash, whole circle, smash. That's the next iteration of the Lego games is they should do an Attitude Era yes. Lego game. APA Lego, like, you know. <laughs> So the APA, it reaches its kind of natural conclusion, not necessarily because, you know, they have no ideas left for them. There was an injury that Bradshaw had kind of in the middle. They kind of split them up for a little bit. They brought them back together. And the kind of reason was is that Farouk was getting on in years. He was like in his late 40s at that point. Bradshaw was a bit younger and they wanted to give Farouk an out so he could go retire. And the way they did this to set up the next phase of his career and his next character this is one of my favorite bits of storytelling wrestling ever so we saw this it's when you know paul Heyman's telling the apa hey you lose your match you're fired tonight and then they lose their match and he's like oh i wasn't talking about you bradshaw i meant him farouk he's fired and then bradshaw all of a sudden is like well me yeah um and then ron's like you're gonna stick up for me right and he's like yeah but um and he just becomes this coward he doesn't even say anything uh, he literally just like acts through his face he's just like starts blushing and then like doesn't make eye contact with ron oh the way it ends is heartbreaking and he's got like this look in his eyes of like he's sad but also kind of like he can see the the cogs turning, the the opportunistic yeah. side of him going. Well, hang on, this could be really good for me. Yeah, he's a really great actor because you know a lot of this is real. This is this was his big opportunity. He was at this point in the company for eight years, you know, and he hadn't had many big shots at doing anything kind of in terms of a singles. And you know, as successful as it was at the tag team, there was kind of an upper limit of how much that they could could achieve that way. And I think you know, making fans resent someone for breaking up a team is always a great way i think to get yeah, super heat the fact as well that like farouk is the one who was like really the talented one yeah of yeah of them like he's the great talker he's he was the, the star great wrestler. Like, he's yeah, the star. yeah everyone loved him like out of the two he was the most over so then the idea of him being unfairly fired and jbl being like well okay this could be good though like that's so heel that's wonderful i love it like you end one episode of smackdown with ron just being like 
Wow. After Walk- all these years. Walking off into the sunset with his like his bag over his shoulder and it's like that's the last you see of him. And Brad's like, Come on, Ron, you know what I gotta do. Come, come on, you gotta understand. Like yeah. he just become it's like this tough guy melts before you and just mm-hmm. becomes this like other guy. And then the next week he comes out and he's not Bradshaw, he's John Bradshaw Layfield, who's really excited for you to see his new CNBC show. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about the stock markets. I've got a portfolio that beat the market seven out of the last seven years. And I remember as a kid, this is 04, Joe. I just witnessed fucking George W. Bush's first term in office. And this man was Satan to me as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I I don't think young people today would understand why that would be so effective. Right, yeah. Because so much of our world now, our society is political. Yeah. But when we were growing up, you did not talk about politics. It was very much a taboo thing. You did not do it. It was, especially in like media that's supposed to be fun, you don't make it political. Remember you and I, we watched some thing on a documentary kind of a, on YouTube, a video essay of sorts, where they talked about the kind of the protest songs and music, etc. Yeah. Of that Bush era. And it's like, get a load of this. And it's like, whoa, Green Day? Yeah. That ain't the normal colors of the US flag. Like that, yeah, that was our equivalent of being political was being like, Bush is stupid. He what? looks like a chimp. I, I've, wow. I've, re- I've released a compilation CD where he's going, turn that music down. Don't forget that one where he's reading the book upside down. Ah, oh, politics. Fucking A. God. So like, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd read like, you know, Michael Moore book for the first time. Mm. I had seen Fahrenheit 9-11 and I was absolutely fucking fuming George W. Bush. And I I think a big reason for this is, you know, I know I'm a fucking freak who likes politics and all that jazz, but I went to boarding school. So I remember one of my very early memories for me was the year 2000. It was my first year in boarding school and my prefect in my dorm was American as was a bunch of his friends who were all up there. And I remember like waking up in the middle of the night, it was like two in the morning and all these Americans, they're all like from like Chicago, New York and Minneapolis and stuff. And they're all crying basically and being like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen because George Bush had won the recount and they were convinced the country was done. That was the one with Al Gore, right? Yeah, that was the one with Al Gore. And then, you know, the following year you had 9-11 and just kind of seeing it from like, you know, obviously seeing it on the news and all that, but I was in a position where I was seeing, like, here's Americans, here are guys from the Middle East, here are guys from Nigeria, here are guys from Europe. Like, I was surrounded by all these international students, so I kind of felt really strongly about it, and I fucking hated George Bush. And JBL's character, in a nutshell, was the kind of mainstream Republican Mm. turned up to 11 of 2004. He seems tame by modern standards, I'm going to say right now. He seems, like, normal like i don't mean that in um i mean that in as a negative like yeah. it's in like it's so normal to see people like him now yeah like it's just like just turn on any like conservative leaning news channel in any country i think it's will... more extreme now than what he does like yeah no year, i agree you know? i don't think i don't think the character would work now because everyone would probably be just like okay are we supposed to boo this guy then because I kind of already watch news shows yeah. with, with him on it, basically. But it's very kind of nuanced in the sense that if you were someone who didn't like politics or whatever, you didn't care about that. Which was most people at that time. It's most people. And, you know, Vince McMahon isn't like, you're going to go out there and parody George Bush. But Vince is like, 
the big rich Texan with the big fucking cigar. He lives in New York City. You know, he loves the stock exchange. He loves money. He he just wants to step on the little guy. It was again kind of creating that like boss like figure almost mm. that you know the, the the common wrestling fan would resent. But there were these kind of other elements to it. He would say things, you know, someone started chanting at him, you sold out. He's like, the only thing I sold was a bunch of stock last week before terrorism scared the markets and I made a whole lot of money. Or like he becomes champion and says, I've not been a single terrorist attack since I've been world champion. We watched him going down to the border Mm -hmm. as well, which I remember watching that as a kid and being like, oh, I think wrestling has stepped over a line. Yeah. And like watching it now, it was just kind of like, you know, I'm pretty sure Fox News hosts are pretty much set up 24-7 yep. down on the border. Hell, you've got YouTubers now. Yeah. Doing Live streaming themselves. exact shit. And what does JBL do? He's like, he's like going, this is the most poorest part of the US-Mexican border. And loads of Mexicans come in here for our health care. I'm like, all right, you are definitely fucking having a rib here right oh, now. Oh, yeah. He's like, he's there sneaking around going, no one comes into Texas. Texas is too scared to do anything, but I'm not living in Texas. Him, like, approaching a bunch of folks with a flashlight and, like, going, get out of America. I was waiting for, like, Lalo Salamanca or someone to come behind him and slit his throat or yeah. whatever, but, yeah. Here's something. Yeah. Isn't it surprising he didn't have a gun? Yeah, he had like a, no, a mag light. That no, was it. Gun no gun references. He doesn't talk about the NRA. That's true. That's the one thing. He doesn't talk about gun advocacy. Yeah. Nothing. And this is like, you know, this would have been a political issue at that time. So could have easily been a genuine topic that would be brought up on wrestling. But I just think it's interesting I that it wasn't. they'll ever touch that hot potato. I think that's not to do with WWE. That's to do with the networks. The networks yeah. don't want that. You know, there was an incident involving a gun in wrestling that, let's just say, made Vince shy away from the use of firearms on his sports entertainment broadcast. But like JBL, this isn't like a gimmick to this a sense of like, I remember reading in Mick Foley's book as far back as like 2001 that like, you know, Bradshaw was a passionate political debater you know, him and McFoley used to go to these like smackdown your vote things and Foley would talk on behalf of the Democrats and Bradshaw would talk on behalf of the Republicans and try and like, you know, motivate youngsters to go out and register to vote. And I can't see that happening in modern <laughs> days. I can't see most Democrats wanting to share a stage with a Republican, yet alone wrestlers. I would be surprised if a wrestler came out and said, yeah, actually, I'm affiliated with any political party whatsoever. Yet alone, we're going to sit and talk alongside about our political mm-hmm. beliefs to get youngsters who watch the show to register to vote. Hell no, that ain't happening no now. No way. It's, it's a different time, really, you know? Mm, absolutely. Were you surprised that Mr. Republican, Mr. fucking right-wing capitalist JBL was kind of like poking fun at himself and kind of poking yeah. fun at the implied values of his his brand. Yeah, it's interesting because I think as people on the left, we think that people on the right aren't capable of poking fun at themselves because you don't see it very often. <laughs> so I say there's a little bit of an imbalance there in terms of the comedy, yeah, very often. Yeah. It catches you by surprise, for it, sure. It does, and it's quite... I don't know if this is the right word to use, really, but I found it sort of refreshing just to see someone who genuinely believes this stuff also acknowledge the fact that 
Other people don't like us. Other people don't like it. Yeah. And being able to lean into it in such a way. Like, I don't believe he is 100% aligned politically with the character of JBL. No, he's, he's, he's dialed up to, he's dialed to 11 up. or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think he really cares massively. I, I don't know about JBL's real life politics, but my gut says he doesn't care about immigration so much as he cares about, like, the taxes. He cares about more money now, Joe. Yeah. It's what it is. He seems very financially focused. And this was for me as a kid, you can imagine this, right? Like we used to fucking play APA in the schoolyard, like who's who gets to be Bradshaw, who gets to be Faru, right? Like, you know, he was a proper favourite from the childhood. And I find out now that not only is he this Republican dude, and I knew about this, you know, from the book and all that, but I was like, oh he's actually like a fucking white cowboy hat wearing fucking evil monster. Yeah. And as, as well as that, I find out Oh, he's act- like this isn't a gimmick. He actually has the stock portfolio. Yeah. He is he owns these companies. Uh-huh. He this is legitimate. He is a self-made millionaire. It's incredible. That's fu- he's a fucking football wrestler dude from Texas. I love that part of him, and I kind of wish I didn't, but I do genuinely love when wrestling is real life. Is that just though because it's refreshing that it's like, here's a guy, you kind of knew a bit about the character and it turns out, oh, he's actually the self-made man, X, Y, and Z. It's mm. refreshing in that context. Or is it kind of like, you would like to see this more in wrestling that someone is, I don't know, has an outside life or interest, I, I guess? I think it's that, yeah. It's just the idea of it being, it just adds more to their character. The fact that after that promo we watched, you could literally turn on CNBC and he's there talking about the stock market. That year, That's weird. I can't kind of get my head around that. I know. And that year, he married a woman named Meredith Whitney, who was also a big financial guru slash whiz, you know, political commentator and all that jazz. Mm. So it was kind of like, you know, it was, it was very shocking for me that my rootin' tootin' card-playing Texan was in actual fact Mr. Fucking Wall Street. He was like more like the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase because he was actually, he wasn't dressed up in cartoon dollar sign clothes. He was the kind of real version of that he's yeah. like a little a guy who you think would step on anyone to kind of get an extra bit of money yeah it was effectively done and the first opponent for him was eddie guerrero who had just won the championship had defended it at wrestlemania was living his american dream and i think like oh that's a spicy combination there of of two very very opposing characters in wrestling yeah i just have one question about the apa but of course yes, and i wasn't yes. sure when i should bring this up but did they own a brothel? <laughs> what? At one point they came out in t-shirts that said APA bar and brothel. I thought it was bar and grill. Is it bar and brothel? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it said. Okay, so um, the APA had a couple of t-shirts. One was APA, Accolade Protection Agency. Bar and brothel. You know, side venture. I think it was going to be a fictional place, you know? Mm-hmm. Like 123 Gimmick Street or something like that. Okay. The other t-shirt that they released, which uh, my friend who I went to WrestleMania with, unironically owned as a child, said, APA, always pound an ass. I've seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. Pound an ass, Joe. Nice. It's a very, very cool t-shirt. heterosexual. It is. I mean. Very straight. I'm a boy who had a DX top that said suck it on it at age 10 years old. So Mm -hmm. I don't really think I can talk about who was wearing embarrassing wrestling t-shirts and when. Mine was just slightly more mainstream. Not anywhere less embarrassing though. So Mm. yeah. It's a good time to bring that up as any, you know. Maybe that was one of JBL's, you know, part of his portfolio, you know. Maybe that was it. I invested in brothels just when the American family died. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this takes us now to our matchup between Eddie Guerrero and John Bradshaw Layfield. This is for the WWE Championship and it's a Judgment Day 2004. Now obviously the issues between Eddie Guerrero and JBL, you can kind of predict a lot of them. Uh, surprisingly, Eddie didn't take particularly kindly to the man going down to the border and shooing away people and cutting lengthy anti-Mexican promos, etc, etc. But this had a special spicy build-up, Joe. There was a tragedy. Eddie brought in his family into the ring for something, and then JBL was, like, mean to her. <laughs> mean to her. And then she had a heart attack. Yeah, so, uh, fun fact. Well, not particularly fun fact. Uh, that actually ended up turning into a bit of a shoot. What? Uh, so he came out and there was a plan was that he was going to beat up Eddie in front of the family and that she'd be like, oh no, I'm having a heart attack. Right. And then she did actually have a minor cardiac event in the process of that happening. What, while she was faking it? Yes. Oh my God. Uh, that is art imitating life there, unfortunately. She was 76 years old and I don't think Eddie Guerrero is the type of guy who needs real to kind of make him turn on the switch no but when he's cutting the promo about my 76 year old mother i'm gonna beat the shit out of you oh baby so good that's some good stuff right there and uh yeah jbl quoted ivan drago from rocky four when he said if she dies she dies <laughs> keep your eyes on the game bradshaw good lord Michael Cole informs us as we start off this contest that he wants no part of jbl's america which is, by the looks of things, a lot milder than actual America in yeah. 2022. Mm. I like the idea of these two guys maybe settling their differences, not in the wrestling ring, Joe, but back to a simpler time. These are both wrestlers who have cars. Mm. And I feel that in the style of Halloween Havoc 95, which we covered on Pay-Per-View Classic. Monster trucks. You know. Oh, oh we could do like Eliminator style. We could put... Bradshaw's limo yeah. on the big uh, monster, monster truck, truck wheel, yeah. wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then have a low-riding monster truck for Eddie. Oh, man, if he starts, you know, hitting the hydraulics yeah. on that, that's going to be very, very dangerous indeed. Can we talk a little bit about the Judgment Day 2004 set, the days before blank screens? Yes, it's brilliant. You've got, like, crucifixes up everywhere. There's, like, six fucking crucifixes. I think there's even more than that. They're covered in, like, rags and stuff like that as well, implying that the bodies that were on them yeah. have perished and yeah. disintegrated. Rotted away. It's a spicier time, 2004. I like it. Yeah? it's Wrestling it's... is a spicier time, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, early on, we get zero offense from JBL. He just gets his shit knocked out of him by poor Ed by Eddie, who's just, you know, full of passion. I will say, though, I was more than a bit distracted from Eddie's back in this match. It oh. was a fucking sight to see. Oh, my God. I want to take an Italy cloth to that back. I know. He just needs a good fucking scrub, doesn't he? Yeah, he needs a good exfoliation. He does. He needs all them boys popping out there. like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just in case anyone knows what boy's popping out, I'm not talking about he should take out his dick or anything oh, like that. Gosh. No, I mean, he's got like zits and stuff yeah. like that. It's fucking gross. What do you think to uh, Bradshaw, the new look here? He's got the, he's got the trunks, big old hoss. I love it. It, it suits him, doesn't it? It really suits him, and it's great as a heel. He looks horrible. Now, here's the question I wanted to ask for you, because we've obviously, you know, always paying close attention to this in wrestling. Mm hmm. Is his fake tan to the point of working heel? Do you know what I mean by that? Well, he, like MJF. Yeah, because MJF, we, we and Joe are convinced over on our Patreon that MJF, like, he deliberately does a shitty job mm. to rile up the fans. How about Bradshaw here? Bradshaw has a, an even tan. He's got some gaps. Really? He does. Underneath the arse. 
underneath the, the bicep. Hard. He's to got get creases. Those bits, though. Oh, is it? Yeah. I've never chanced, so I wouldn't no. know. Well, <laughs> it, it's hard because when you've got skin making skin contact, and then sweat happens, it rubs off. They must have a special brand, right? Huh? I mean, because they won't rub off in the mask. Because there's a lot of you know a lot of sweating going on here very very quickly. Yeah, but it's like repeated movement plus sweat. Ah, I see, I see. So JBL gets this big old headlock on Eddie, and before I remembered what happens later in this match, I thought this was the grossest thing where he had him in a headlock and a big long bead of sweat ran all the way down his face, past his nipple, and right into Eddie's eye, and Eddie's like, yeah, yeah, that's horrible. It's absolutely horrible, but. Of course, we get something a little bit more horrible than that in a little bit. I uh, just want everyone to know here, from when we were watching these matches, I'm going to sound the alarm. It's the Joe Loves Taz alarm, because you just keep randomly going, I love Taz. And uh, just one, one or two questions. Firstly, uh, how come that is? And secondly, where was that enthusiasm during the Taz episode? Because I don't like Taz as a wrestler. I like him as a commentator. <laughs> well, we should, we should just watch any ECW. It should have just been all like 2000s pay-per-views. Yeah. Or him cutting, cutting to him and Michael Cole. There was a point when we were paused and you were like, that is the most Michael Cole and Taz shot ever. And because there was just Taz going, huh? <laughs> yeah. And Michael Cole going, wah. Wah. I mean, Michael Cole has got a low-tier, unevolved Waluigi vibe to him here. He's got the little moustache going on here. No, but I just love Taz. I just love how he looks. I'm just obsessed with how he looks. Like, I think because he incorporates the orange into his look and stuff no, like that? No, I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> what is it then? He's just very photogenic. I think he's really handsome. I think mm. he's got a great look. I think he just exudes something. It's just every time I see him in his suits, I'm like, God, that is a cool, cool man cool man i was amazed at the speed of bradshaw here because you know eddie is a fast dude and i know they do slow it down a couple of times with headlocks and stuff like that yeah <laughs> but i was impressed that he managed to keep up a pace with eddie and i think one of the reasons why this match got so much kind of attention and all that is that both men would have been good friends with bruce pritchard who i think loved this angle he yeah. loves the you know, anti, um, anti-Mexican, anti Mexican-American, because he came up through, like, the kind of southern Texan territories, so there would have been a lot of that used. And, you know, this worked a treat. Like, it got fans really, really on... You know, he went from being a tag guy to being a main eventer pretty much overnight as a result. Oh, Eddie did a special ear clap here, and I think this is something that you were, like, you wanted to see in wrestling, right? Yeah, so recently Cody's been doing... I don't know what the move is called, but you basically, like... Go... Yeah, you do like a clap around their head and you it's, clap it's your to hands. Discombobulate them, I think. And you clap your hands behind their head so your arms make contact with the sides of their head. And I don't like it. I think it's a shit move. And I was like saying to you, I was like, why don't they just clap the heads themselves? Like, you know, get the head in the middle and then clap either side of the ears. Because that would be horrible. <laughs> it would be horrible. Yeah. But then again, we're in the ring with JBL here, so there's no fitting time like the present, I see. And yeah, Eddie does it to JBL. He claps him right in the fucking ears. But that's horrible. Yeah, I think so. You have some tinnitus there going on there, well, for I hope sure. So. so the ref gets knocked down in the best way possible because Eddie is firing up and he hits the ropes and the referee takes a little bit of a tumble. And then we get an almighty fucking chair shot from Bradshaw to Eddie. Now, this is that idea of being snug... Or stiff or whatever it is, but expecting it in return. That doesn't work when you've got a weapon. Yeah, because my god. You can't be stiff with weapons. We've just done Survivor Series 03 on Pay-Per-View Classic. 
where Vince McMahon bled a large amount. I would hazard a guess that Eddie somehow bled more here. This yeah. was, I mean, this was worse than I remembered. I, I remember thinking there was a bit of blood in this. Mm. And I think if I remembered how much blood there was in this, I might not have shown you this match. <laughs> <laughs> describe um, describe the blood, if you don't mind, my co-host. I mean, how do you describe it? It's just everywhere. It's pouring out of him. It's thick. It's viscous. It's bright red. Ah, oh, And just like every time he takes a pause, a breath, a rest, there's a puddle underneath him. I was wondering, and I think you were as well, like that is that's definitely past the point of a safe amount of blood loss yeah i'm not sure it's a pint you can lose right without having like you get symptoms after that i think if you lose more than a pint i yeah i think so but like that's something that i've always kind of you know a a factoid in my back pocket from the from like back in the 90s so i'm not even sure if that is medically true or not i think it's a pint because i think it's when you go to donate blood i think oh they will take more than that is a pint yeah well, more than a pint here for sure. Yeah, Jesus Christ. It's massive. He's got a pitcher going blood. on here, yeah. not a pint. Good Lord. And it's like all over his head immediately. And I just, it felt like to me it came from nowhere. This happens I know. very often with I you. Know. And I don't know why, but a chair shot like that happens. And I'm literally like, yo, mamma mia, hoo hoo. Yeah, just, I know your notes. Chair shot, Jesus yeah, it's all capital letters. I know. And, and mine's like, like what? What, what even Why happened? is he bleeding? <laughs> Here's my theory. Yeah. The main wrestling you have watched since you started watching wrestling is the WWE, which is a strict no-blood policy. And also no chair shots to the head. You say that, but AEW has blood every fucking paper. That is true as well. Why is it about a really strong chair shot to the head that is like, there's that, and then there's bleeding, and somewhere in between there's a question mark for you. <laughs> I have please enlighten me please do my theory is i hate chair shots unprotected chair shots to the head so much Mm -hmm. that maybe my brain disassociates when i see them that could be it like i'm just so i find them so obsessing that my brain just zones them out and i don't really see them that is one of the most upsetting chair shots ever i hate it and i really hate it when it's to wrestlers i like as well i love eddie and with everything that happened to him, I just, I really don't want to see him take an unprotected chair shot to the head. So it's not like I'm consciously like, I'm going to look away or I'm not going to yeah, think yeah. about it. It's like, I don't even, I think my brain just distracts itself and it's like, think of something nice. <laughs> Did it work for you? Because you know, I remember for me, this, this, I, I, I was saying to you, this is the first pay-per-view I watched in boarding school where there was no one else with me. Yeah. You know, Brock Lesnar had split, you know, all the top names were gone. No one watched wrestling anymore. No, there was that boy who came in for a there was a boy who came in to watch Tori Wilson versus Don Marie. Saw you in there and was like, I'm off to bed. I'm off to bed now. <laughs> and then uh, I watched the rest of the pay-per-view on my own. But like, I remember being like, you know, almost a little bit like when Mankind got brutalized by, by the, the Rock. Rock. Yeah. But the difference was, is that unlike The Rock, it wasn't like over and over. And like, stop, stop, you're making it worse. It just felt like, bam, this really horrible thing happened. And then I just felt I was like fucking... In, in bits and pieces for I the imagine rest of the it was match. really scary to see it didn't like, feel like you loved it was, Eddie didn't you as a teen I yeah. adored him and I did not anticipate this happening because mm. I thought we're past this now the gory blood fest you didn't even get gore like this during the fucking attitude era yeah. most of the time you know not intentionally anyway I thought it had to have been a mistake but no that was the that was the plan 
They wanted to get it over, get it over hard, and that was how they were going to do it, was with a lot of blood. I think it's entirely unnecessary. I think JBL is enough of a heel to not need it. I gave think... your grandmother a heart attack. I know. For real. For real. Your actual mama Sita got yeah. a heart attack. Like, Come you on. You don't need to cut his head open with a massive like, brain trauma inducing chair shot. Do you think that's an Eddie thing? I don't know. Because I feel like Eddie and Bradshaw, they were always like, they spoke very highly of each other, big, big fans of each other's work and they were oh, really? a good team up and I think I thought you said earlier that Eddie didn't like Bradshaw well maybe in kayfabe yeah. oh I see yeah, right yeah. and I think again it's one of these things where you've got a performer like JBL who's more than happy to swing a chair you just give him the reason to he'll hit and you nice and hard stiff and he's stiff yeah as if any chair shot cannot be stiff like but um, Eddie I think is the type of guy who'd be like oh yeah you'll do that fuck yeah That's, you know I think mm. they're kind of what makes them ideal opponents also makes them kind of really bad for each other in yeah, a sense. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. This is the only match I can remember watching where the wrestlers start slipping on the blood. Mm-hmm. Like they're going... The referee starts slipping on the blood. It's it's so much. It is an incalculable amount of blood. Yeah. That ring mat is like... It's it's so many colours because it's the blood that's drying, the fresh blood. Mm-hmm. The blood starts off like dark red from Eddie, then it gets lighter as mm-hmm. it becomes more oxygenated. It's fucking wild. Yeah, it's uh it's very cartoonish. And it didn't help matters that Michael Cole said, He's bleeding like a sieve and then he turned to me and said, Did he say he's bleeding like a sim? <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's two thousand and four. Come on, yeah, have you got the new update for Sims four yeah. where you can bust them wide open? <laughs> ah but uh, anyway <laughs> My main thought seeing all this blood was the smell. Oh, it smelled like iron probably. Like, I like, felt yeah. watching this match like I could smell the iron that's not nice no. is it and old blood as well as it starts to dry you have to be throwing that one out into the bin after <laughs> the end of this one no, get rid of this ring set it on fire like Gross. so we get a clothesline from hell from JBL that's his finisher where he just does a big bam. I love it do you I, I absolutely adore it yeah. why do you love that was my favourite finisher when I was a kid I think it's the same reason why I love Scott Hall's punches mm. in that JBL is very tall very big and he works stiff so I think when he's clotheslining them, he's he's kind of doing it for real. Yeah. But like I think with clotheslines, I think they always look better when they're done for real. I and think, I don't yeah. think I don't think it's the type of move as well where it's like I mean I again I know nothing, but I don't think it's the type of move that's dangerous if you do it for real. Like I don't see how you could really get injured. I think I I, I remember like kind of praising that move a lot, you know, in, in previous podcasts, and someone did tweet me and they were like, yeah, it's a great move, but it's a great move because like he ensures above all else that the move gets over yeah it's like the move getting over is top priority then you getting over and then your opponent's safety comes like third or fourth on that list and it's you know i'm sure there's people who've had you know seen some bright lights when they've been hit with that clothesline from hell because I'm sure i started watching a comp there's a 36 minute compilation of him doing it on youtube like, and i got you... desensitized after two minutes i think i would have thought if you land properly like if you're trained to land on your back with your yeah. arms down you should be safe the problem is is i think that you can have so much momentum from him hitting you that you actually start to spin right and i know there were wrestlers who kind of like started to go like almost do a 360 and kind of like yeah. land 
arsed elbow type of a thing, you know. Are there any cases of wrestlers being, like, hurt or injured? I don't recall. I know that he hurt himself. He tore his bicep at a house show once. Good. (laughs) You know what? Already, this is getting to Vince McMahon levels of really like the character. Fuck him, though. Fuck him, though. He is... Yeah. Really two different entities, it feels like, at times. I love a nasty heel. You like seeing him get beat up? You like seeing him get hurt? I mean, you're not seeing as much... In- yeah, I haven't seen him get beat up that much. So, he gets the clothesline from hell, the referee is knocked out, and he literally starts beating up the referee. And I remember like, just thinking that was such a great spot. Well, the referee is unconscious, we have to mention. Yeah, and he, like, drags KO'd. him into the ring to, like, beat up this unconscious referee. So nasty. And, like, he goes from being kind of really scary to being, like, re- he's like, come on, wake up, wake up! He's so desperate. Like, he-, he knows this is his moment, this is it. And, like, they're talking as if he's already won the belt. He puts... Fucking hell. He puts Eddie in the sleeper hold after Eddie finally kicks out. And just as he's holding him there, he just gets painted. Like, Bradshaw gets covered. Like, I I think he does get split open later on himself. Yes, he does. But he's already covered in Eddie Guerrero's blood. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. That mix it of, like, two people shouldn't get that level of blood on them, should they? I don't know. I just think it's too much blood. Like, what story does that tell? It's like, I may as well watch the Chainsaw Massacre movies or whatever. Like, I don't... I don't get... It doesn't make it realistic to me to see wrestlers lose many pints of blood to the point where they need a blood transfusion. Like, I think you could have lost 60% of this blood and it still would have been as iconic. Oh, I think it would have been more iconic. To me, the visual of a wrestler having a small wound on their head which trickles down which then becomes a crimson mask once they get into the sleeper that is powerful yeah like austin and brett right you know because it's the face as opposed to the ring yeah i'm okay with the ring getting very bloody occasionally joe graham wants that to happen one way and one way only folks that's when the red of the new blood comes called in wcw (laughs) that's the only acceptable way i just think the whole point of a sleeper hold on someone who's been cut open is if they're not already getting enough blood and if you're already bleeding you know i think at this point eddie's lost three pints of blood and then he gets put in the sleeper hold and he loses a further two pints yeah it's 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 a long stretch to be losing blood constantly what's the point though yeah what are you gaining there you're not you're just detracting also as well the fact this is the first of like many match they would have you know a follow-up match and then a follow-up match after that there is two more matches in this series right. oh they've peaked already oh yeah this is the one that's considered to be the legendary match and i think it's because it has that, that blood, level of yeah. blood i do like it though it kind of the thing about the finish i think works really well where you've got jbl deciding right i've tried everything this guy i can't put him away like eddie guerrero firing up and coming back while being like like as fucking gory as you can be is a very fucking spine chilling moment. But JBL being decided, right, I've done all this stuff. I'm going to, you know, try and hit him again with the belt. And Eddie just kicks him square in the dick. And yeah. he's like, Boah! covered in blood, holding his dick. He technically wins the match, but he is not champion. What I'd have liked to have seen is for JBL to fall into a pool of Eddie's blood and it splash around him. And he's like, Boah! I'm drowning, help me. I'm a dick sword. <laughs> so Eddie just beats the shit out of him. He's literally on his hands and knees begging, pleading, please don't, no, no, no. And Eddie just absolutely decimates him. It is a bloody, borderline sickening encounter. Hmm. And I don't know. I feel like I'm in a few minds about it. I've got the nostalgia factor playing for me big here with this, but I know that the blood was an issue for you. So how did you get on with the match? I mean... 
did the character of JBL like did he did he come across as a character in this match? I guess sure, but no more so than he does when he does a promo. Yeah, like, I don't need to see him in matches to get that. Yeah, because you kind of get the point. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. That's Maybe true. Maybe that comes from him having you know come up through the APA and that mm. he gets the character work so well, and he didn't really do much wrestling in his early career. So yeah. like you you know he doesn't need to. And especially when it's stiff and stuff, it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't need that. This match I thought was okay. Definitely too many rest holds. You brushed over the rest holds. You're like, yeah, there's a rest hold or two. There are so many rest holds in this. Yeah, but one's really exciting and it's full of blood. <laughs> yeah, and the others are full of blood and they're not exciting at all. In fact, they're really boring. And not, not only are they boring, but you're thinking, there's a man in this match losing a pint of blood a minute for this, mm. and this is how you choose to spend that minute. <laughs> Like, what's the point? Too much blood, too many rest holds, but some good moves. I love that clothesline. That's my problematic fave. The curb stomp, the clothesline. Yeah, good lord, like. I know. She's got a type. What the fuck is wrong with me? I don't understand. I'm such a hypocrite. I gave it three and a half stars out of five. Not so bad. It was okay. So, interesting though, did the fact that you know knew Eddie, did that help you enjoy the match? Or did, okay. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I figured if I showed you this during the Eddie episode, which was my original yeah, plan. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want that. It just would have been a downer, I think. Yeah, definitely. You know? No, no, this was this was fun because Eddie, well, he doesn't win, but he kind of does get the upper hand. And it's very satisfying to see a Mexican-American from Texas mm. genuinely beat up, like, a horrid, nasty Texas yeah. businessman. Like, yeah, it for is. For real. It, it, you know, this resonated with people. I think, yeah. like, this got over with, you know, we were talking in the Eddie episode about how, like, SmackDown drew a large Hispanic audience. This is a huge reason for it, like, you know. Mm. And I know that is, like, it, it does have echoes of bad taste and, and then some in it. But, you, yeah. you know, that is part of, and as much as I don't like the man, I always thought that Pritchard knew that audience at least and again you know as we said you can go down to mexico or the border towns and go to an indie show and you will find you know because it's something that's close to the people's hearts you know they will find gimmicks of this nature and as a modern viewer i found it really satisfying to think of the types of you know the idiot youtubers the fox news reporters all those bullshit shitheads who go down with their torches and disturb the lives of the people who live there you know, getting battered to fuck. I only wish it's it cathartic was... for an audience, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I only wish it was JBL losing all those pints of blood instead of Eddie. <laughs> yeah, I think he probably lost around a pint, but it was indeterminate with the amount yeah. that that Eddie had. And this, you know, set up his the following month. He would win the title at the Great American Bash, and it was a four corners match, and it was basically like he won the match almost by accident. You have to touch all four corners, and Eddie was so busy beating up Bradshaw, he didn't notice that he had thrown him into like the last oh, right. corner. So he wins That's the a stupid match. He, yeah, I know he wins the belt in like a technicality, which is like yeah. you know, and he's he's making out he's the all conquering hero. But like I was looking back at the list of matches he did, he was champion for around ten months, so he was the longest reigning champion in SmackDown history at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And the types of matches they put him into, the idea was it was kind of like about what they used to do at Ric Flair back in the day: is you know this guy is a coward, you know that he shouldn't be champion, you know that all these studs who are lining up to take him on would have him beat any day of the week. So you would have. Him versus The Undertaker in a fucking last ride match. You have to put the, your opponent into a hearse. And, like, obviously he's going to get his ass kicked. And he did. He'd be choke slammed through his fucking limousine and all that. But he'd, you know, get away with the skin of his teeth. 
or he's going to be in a barbed wire steel cage match with the Big Show. There's no way he'll get out of that one. A Big Show chokeslams him so hard he goes through the ring and crawls out underneath the mat and wins the match. So he, like, you know, as much as people didn't like the guy, you can't say that he didn't put in his business into it because he got their shit knocked out of him for a year straight, pretty much, when he was champion. Well, good, because that's That's putting... (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's saying... He's actually at least doing what he says he does. Yes, he's taking the licks as opposed to just dishing them out. Yeah, he's not a hypocrite in that very one narrow definition in that particular way. But of course, as well, you have to realise around this time as well, controversy is not far behind because it's one thing being the buddy with the top guy or the buddy with the guy who's buddies with the top guy or in the inner circle or whatever. But when you're a world champion, you know, of one of the shows... You're under a bit more of a microscope. And this is when I remember there were a lot more stories about the allegations of bullying and hazing and stuff like that were coming out about Bradshaw. And it's not just like bullying of his wrestlers. There was him doing stuff that was, you know, frankly, a bit outside the pale. He got in big, big trouble at late 04 Joe when they were in Germany. And he thought the best way for him to build, build up a little bit of heat in front of that German crowd for the house show was to start doing some goose steps and doing the Nazi salute on the apron. He got fired from CNBC. Good. WWE took him off TV for like a day and then brought him back. Mm -hmm. And he had to release an apology and he was saying, look, I'm a character. I know I lived in Germany. I worked in Germany. He lived in Germany and he still did that. He did. And probably the reason why he did is because he knew how offensive it was. But then does he also realise that like at some point your people are going to think you're endorsing it? Oh, and also it's 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 a it's you know, you do that in Germany, it's not just like oh public disturbance, it's a specific crime. You do that, you're fucking going down, like, you know, they don't take that shit lightly, you know? And his rationale was this is my character. JBL is this absolute piece of shit. He's he's a no good Nick. He'll do anything to make people hate him. And he's like, you wouldn't say that Anthony Hopkins is a cannibal, would you? That's like saying that I'm a racist. I'm not, you know? You probably are, though. But the thing is, for me, it's like, I like the nuance of this JBL character when it's like, he's meant to be this kind of self-aggrandizing, kind of capitalistic, mm-hmm. you know, venture capitalist type of dude, whatever it is you want to say about him. But just to then be like, oh yeah, and he's going to turn around and start goose-stepping. Like, as fun as it is to call all your political opponents fascists, and as fun as it is to call everyone Nazis, it's just like, I don't see the nuance in that character who disguises his racial hatred in so much, you know, eloquent talk of economics and immigration that he's just going to go and do a goose-step on the ring apron in Germany. It's really out of character. It does. It feels like... That's more John Layfield than it is JBL. It's, I'm not saying you know, that's in your heart. I'm just saying that doesn't seem like something the character would do as a fucking nerd who knows the character, you know? This is really interesting, this whole thing about his goose-stepping, because I actually read an article by JBL um, just before oh. we recorded about being a heel. Oh, this from his... He did the Layfield Report. was his website, I think. He used to do uh, blogs and stuff back in the day. But Could well be. And when was this written, do you know? Or? Not sure. Okay. But in it, he talks about the um, extremes he's willing to go to to get heat. Because he says, like, the number one purpose of being a proper heel is to make people want to see you get beaten up. And if at any point any part of the crowd is cheering you or not booing you, you're not doing your job right. So he basically says, I will do whatever it takes. So they were cheering him so much in Germany. He just had to do that show. Yeah, I think that's his justification. (laughs) I appreciate the the commitment to it. I'm not saying that to justify it. Because I think what he did is fucked up and really shit and boring and lazy. But I... I think I can understand why he did it. That's his his ethos. 
Mate, but like, mate, for me though, watch some television and learn some other ways to get heat other than like goose stepping. But like, that's the type of thing a, teen- yeah, an right? teenager did in two thousand. Fucking edge It's lazy. And for me, I I know I feel like it's that's not necessarily like. You know, I don't think that's justification at all. I don't think that he's explained himself properly there because, you know, when he was arrested in Ireland, over my friends went to see him at a house show and him and Kurt Angle took turns dropping elbow drops on the Irish flag. All right, like, you know, we don't take the flag as seriously in Ireland. I mean, I remember hearing that and laughing my fucking head off. Like, I think it was so funny. Then Chris Benoit ran them off and said he was going to drink a pint of Guinness and everyone started chanting for Chris Benoit. (laughs) 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 Innocent, simpler times. But, like... Not to say there's not like, you know, if you've got a, you know, a Wikipedia on your phone and you can't find out some really fucking salacious shit that you could say to the Irish people to really fucking rile them up and really yeah. fucking like hurt us, you know, in an emotional way that hurts us and our families. And it ain't dropping a fucking elbow on our flag. No, like, he should do you that know? in England. Yeah, but like, you know, he wouldn't do that in England, would no. he? And he wouldn't do that in Germany because in Germany he could do something that's fucking lazier and more mm-hmm. shock value. And he doesn't have to actually, I just feel like, Again, much like the earlier chat about the bullying, I feel that, and he wasn't always doing it, but I feel that JBL, as a world champion, and having that character, he had pretty much written himself free tickets to do kind of whatever and justify it as being heel. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. He loses the gig at CNBC, and he's hired the next week at Fox News. (laughs) Actually, really liked your uh, pro-Nazi display there. That was quite good, actually. Yeah. Do you you want to join up the team? So what was his role there exactly? Because he's not a journalist. He's not a reporter. Political and financial commentator. The first of many wrestlers who have appeared on Fox News, by the way. So was he doing it in character? No, no. He's John Layfield, the the self-made millionaire. So how does he talk? Does he talk like in character? He just talks like John. Hey, we're talking about the stock markets today. You know? So he talked about the stock markets rather than like, he didn't talk about like, like emigration and the sort of the heel elements. Because I feel the stock market stuff of his heel character yeah, is yeah. like, that's more middle of the road. I know it was, like, it was primarily financial stuff, but he was like one of the talking heads. You know, yeah. Fox do a lot more now than they did back then where it'd be like, hey, we're talking about the news. And then you turn, there's like four people on the screen from different points of the of the country who want to shout about things. Yeah, He would have been one of one those of guys. Okay. But you know, it just shows you that you can keep you can keep him down with allegations of bullying or allegations of doing stuff that's racist or offensive. It simply would not take. It would not stick. I would hazard a guess in this day and age, in 2022, if you had... I mean, I could even think of it like, I don't know, Judgment Day are going to fucking goose step on their way to the ring or something. I can't think of any heel in wrestling doing that and not being sent into the fucking middle of the sun, fired out of a cannon. No, because these days we accept that there's an element of social responsibility and that Mm. actions have consequences, and that even if you intend for something to be exist in a vacuum as a heel character, there will be people in the audience who will see that and think you are endorsing that. Yeah. As is evidenced by the fact that he got a job at Fox News. Yeah, like, right. That's the issue. Is that and he some, remained world champion as yeah, well. Yeah, you may have intended that to be like an egregious heel act, but some people will see that and go, hell yeah. And there was enough wrestlers of the old school, I know JR was one of those folks as well, where they were absolutely straight away ready to defend him. No, this is what the business is. Heels get heat, that's what they do. It's, it's fictional. You can't say the man is racist because he did this. And I think that was it. They took so much umbrage, people thinking, oh, we're saying this is bad because JBL is racist. That's it's like, the, you know, that's stupid. You're thing. deflecting it, it. it. That pisses me off. And you, it reminds me of the whole like argument against like edgy comedy that mm. went around of people being like, 
yeah, but it's offensive and this, that and the other. And like, yeah, obviously it's fucking racist and homophobic and shit. But to be honest, the most effective way of shutting that stuff down is to say it's lazy. Because it yeah, is. It it's is. boring. It's lazy. It's stupid. And you can do better. You can do you know, better. Honestly, we you all know? expect you to do better. And this is with our bare minimum low expectations. Even the minimum expectations of 2004 slash 5. Like, good Lord almighty. Yeah. And, you know, around the time as well, I know there was a guy who was called Palmer Cannon. He was being brought on TV as like a character character he was like the representative of the network and he didn't last very long at all and it was pretty much as much as i could piece together from shoot interviews joe it seemed to surmise that palmer cannon had a hard time on the road being a wrestler because he had to move from his home in georgia his brother had died very unexpectedly and we knew he hadn't really processed that and the degree to how uncomfortable most wrestlers, even wrestlers who are like, ah, you know, Hazen's not really a thing, bullying's not really a thing, the uncomfort at which people were, you know, unwilling to describe what was said. And like, I saw some real, you know, nasty names in wrestling being like, well, let's just say what he said about his brother was unforgivable. And he left the tour in the middle of a European loop. So no one knows what he said. He left his bag with his wrestling gear in his hotel. He literally ran out of the building, got in a cab and got on the first plane home. And I guess he tried to come and say, say, oh, don't leave. It was Rey Mysterio. It was like, oh, he's just being a bully. You can't, you can't let it get to you. It's heartbreaking. Because, you know, there are well-meaning people there who don't put up with that bullying bullshit. Are, yeah. But they are also powerless to stop it. Yeah, and also the issue is less chasing after the person who's been wronged and more fucking you know facing up to the person who's done this shit mm. like how do you do how do you deal with a bully you know well, what, you should for one you should be able to go up to the undertaker the head bully and go this shit sucks hey can we take john bradshaw layfield to wrestlers course yeah. it's right of interest but being, a, being a fucking bully a, like awful person and i hate as well i hate that there's not a stronger word for this than bullying i know because bully makes it feel like kid town it does, it? Like, yeah. yeah and of course like anyone can be bullied in any situation but it does make it seem infantilizing mm. and like when this fully grown man and that's why men don't like talking about it yeah I, you know it's, it, i i i've been very open about my experience with it i feel like my whole life i had to come to grips with it you know very early on in my, in my you know, i was in boarding school i had to get to grips with my situation and even still i feel a little bit like yeah you know, like, oh i was bullied like it's kind of like you know you're saying like hi i'm a victim and yeah. like you know i can't stand up for myself please mm. take advantage of me and like that's what i feel and you know at times you know when i'm a bit down on myself can you imagine a wrestler's feel yeah. yes alone someone like palmer or cannon who you know geez didn't even get a chance to get out the blocks mm. there is one story of someone sticking up to him and an unlikely source of that i think i might have heard of this have you heard the legend of joey styles yes from ECW. This was in the tweets that came up a bunch because we have the best fans who know <laughs> me so well. And yeah, apparently, I don't know the full story because I only read it this morning, but apparently JBL was like hazing Joey Styles and like just winding him up. I don't think he was even bullying him actually. He was just trying to get to him. He was I just think. like, yeah, doing that thing that bullies do with small kids and they just like fucking turn the dial and they keep turning yeah. it and they keep stirring yeah, it yeah. until they get built up and built up and I think he expected Joey Styles to like cry or something and instead he just punched him in the face and gave him a black eye and cut him open Joey Styles is a much different person than his demeanor <laughs> on commentary would have you believe keep in mind this lad had to put up with 
ECW yeah. for as many years as he did. Yeah, but that's the thing. ECW, they weren't bullies. No. They don't they didn't pick on the little guy. They bullied themselves. They, yeah, they just beat each other up and like caused a ruckus and stuff. But like that's what's so shit about the JBL situation is that he always he's got like a, a routine of picking on the smaller guys yeah the, the people who are below him Matt striker another commentator yeah. who again like i know what it is about commentators because they're not wrestlers so he thinks he can physically it's like vince mcmahon he does the same thing with his commentators like he thinks because he's physically larger and they don't have a physical job that that means they're not going to fight back well like i get it that it cut he's come from this you know this awful combo that i think which is obviously the hierarchy in the locker room that he's trying to protect even as the years are going on or approaching you know the next phase of the wwe he's coming from that world in texas where he idolizes and he was trained by the old kind of guys who still believed it to be treated like you know no treat like a shoot but like you have to make the fans believe that it's a shoot and you have to protect the business by getting rid of all these you know outsiders and ne'er-do-wells and also as well he came from the world of professional football where you know the little mm-hmm. i know is that hazing is absolutely rampant there and and there is a lot of sometimes i've heard sexual elements to some oh, of this oh i was going to say also he wrestled in japan and he wrestled in japan which as again well. is a very hierarchy yeah. focused respect and respect and a lot about hazing the younger guys again i know like i've tried to find out as much as i can about some of this there's a lot of speculation in here say and without fucking you know working myself into a lawsuit here i will say i've heard a number of you know, some of the names we've mentioned had alleged that there was, like, you know, the comments he was making were sexual in nature. And it was, you know, the kind of weird shit, the kind of shit like that, that, you know, if you think men in wrestling are uncomfortable talking about being bullied, they're going to be triply uncomfortable about talking about being bullied and comments like that being made. Yeah. Case I can only in, imagine given the time period and yeah. the industry. Well, case in point, in Edge's autobiography, there was a story that went around for years that, you know, JBL basically attacked edge in a shower after a match Christ. yeah went up and like started kind of jostling like, like, hey, hey, you know. just to be clear this isn't like the whole bret hart in the shower waiting for vince mcmahon no no thing. no like, this is in like hey you're naked i'm naked we're having horseplay <laughs> that's and so fucking weird. You know, a lot of people have talked about it in a way where like edge was like what the fuck are you doing man i'm not comfortable with this and like yeah if you know if you're you know doing your fucking rowdy boisterous thing and you want to assume everyone wants to be part of it like whatever but like edge was a young guy in the business at the yeah. time didn't want anything to do with it and in edge's autobiography he's like no the story was all taken out of context he was just like you know being a being a silly bully and he was you know throwing soap at me and you know lathering up my behind and just being like kind of silly what? about it and i'm like right there's definitely way more to this definitely you know but again it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack but yeah. you can fi- if if you want to fill your boots with wrestlers alluding to there being bullying and there being allegations, but really not being arsed to talk about it because they either feel uncomfortable from their position or feel like they're going to bury someone or put someone else in. Like, no one's going to say, oh yeah, this guy, you know, did this to him. And I feel as well, like, there's another element on top of it with it being professional wrestling in that these people are, their their livelihood is from being strong Mm. and being a physical role model to young people. And I think it's very easy to talk yourself out of these types of situations and saying it's better if I don't talk about it because 
the kids look up to me and they look up to me to be this strong role model and not be affected who's by bullying never affected or, yeah. by bullying and i think it's very easy to kind of convince yourself that you're doing more good by hiding that and not letting it be known than like kind of acknowledging it and going actually we can all be victims of bullying and they're in a better place now obviously all the wrestling is because a lot of that mentality is gone and i think there are some people who still cling to it desperately or wanted to come back but you know, if you think it's the whole kind of, oh, he was a bully because he was bullied excuse. I mean, like, I tried to find out about, you know, hazing he would have experienced in the days when he was doing football. And it was like, yeah, one time they pissed in John's boots. All the all the locker room, they pissed it up all the way to the top. <laughs> his, cow, his lovely cowboy boots. Good. And then he just tipped them out and he wore those boots for the rest of the season. And the boys knew not to mess with them because the whole locker room smelt of piss to remind them that he wouldn't take their shit. The trouble is, though, he's huge yeah and that's a lot of piss joe it's a lot of piss but also i don't think you're ever going to be as picked on if you are a big brash big physical person yeah than if you are smaller yeah for sure like Unquestionably. I, I can't imagine that he was hazed as a footballer as much as like the smaller guys were no or how much he hazed the smaller yeah. guys in in the wrestling business that he yeah. found himself in shortly thereafter and also the whole excuse of like oh well it happened to me so that's why i'm like this is bullshit when you look at wrestling today and like there's like hardly any people like that and like most of those people will have experienced some form of hazing mm. but they're not doing that now yeah it's, so, it's better off for so actually like... they're better than you are because they don't make these excuses. But like, just in case there's any thought in your mind that, you know, a big run with the belt, you know, you know him going from being like a, a very low down the card guy to being top guy on a brand. Mm. As Paul Heyman said, the only reason he got that shot was because Triple H didn't want to work on Tuesdays <laughs> and be away from Stephanie. But, you know, he was champion for a long time. But I don't think, you know, this notion that a championship makes you into like a more you know, well-rounded person. I don't think that was necessarily the case. Does anyone think that? It just feels like that maybe a lot more of the allegations kind of start to catch up with them and come out in public. Fast forward to 2005, where we've got a John versus John match as the recently uncrowned WWE champion John Bradshaw Layfield takes on newly minted and just adored by the fans. Can't get enough of this guy. It's big match John Cena. It's an I quit match for the WWE Championship at Judgment Day. We're one year after our last match and I can easily say from looking at Bradshaw coming out here that the year of being champion has not been favourable to him. It's great. It's like being Prime Minister. <laughs> He's like withered, yeah. but also kind of like bloated up at the same time. He looks like he's fucking, he's winded. Like he looks, you know, it's, don't get me wrong. Like he's not if he's struggling to perform in the match, but like, you know, yeah. He looks old. He looks way older. And he already looked old. He's got an old ass face and he looks, he looks like he does now. Yeah. Here. And this is like nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, 17 or thereabouts. So he has his promo at the start talking about quitting. John, if you say you quit, you ain't a man, and I'm gonna make you bleed, and the blood's gonna get all down your face, gonna get in your eyes, it's gonna be stingy, it's gonna get in your mouth, <laughs> it's tasting bad. Get ready, John. It's kind of sexy. Kind of sexy. Yeah. Not gonna lie, he's horny for this fucking match. Yeah. He likes this. He, he likes he, it a lot. He wants to wrestle Eddie Kingston. I bet. Oh my good God in heaven! You don't deserve <laughs> to. You don't deserve to. You're not nice enough to bleed with Eddie. I don't know. I'd fucking pay money to see Eddie Kingston legit when beat up back JBL. Fist his head off him, yeah. like you know. How good would that be, though? Oh or man, old ass JBL. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got two belts here. John John Cena with the 
new spinner belt and JBL with the traditional old belt. And I do remember like he hasn't earned, he's no. just nicked it. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. Yeah, he, he literally said, I walked into your locker room and I just took your belt. You left it hanging there. I thought, though, they edited the belt. I didn't realise they just copied it and made a new one. What's that? When they brought in the Spinneroonie belt. Yeah. An <laughs> great, emotional great name for Spinneroonie. An emotional Spinneroonie. <laughs> Um, when they brought in the Spinneroonie belt, I thought that was the original belt, but they just edited it. Oh no, it. whole new belt. Whole new belt, I didn't whole realize that. And then also, why did they keep the old belt then? The idea was that John had unveiled his new belt, and on the same night he did that, JBL went in and found the old belt, and it's like, this is the real championship. And I remember as a kid, I remember when I was watching this growing up, being like so incensed because... When someone's been championed for a year, you want to see them without the belt. And then he would still come out with the belt. And had John seen his name on it, I was like, he fucking always found a way. God Mm. damn him. This is early John Cena. So the fans are cheering him. And he's full on wicked hard Boston, John. He is such a clumsy, over the top, full of beans he is, Joe. (laughs) I genuinely adore early John Cena. He's got such a beautiful accent. Love it. He's got a beautiful face. I love his rapping. I think I'm the only person in the world who unironically loves John Cena's raps. Yeah, because this is like to get over John as the the new franchise player. He's got Bad Bad Man coming out. Mm -hmm. He's got movies coming out. He's been in Hollywood, Joe. Coming out on the back of a big 18-wheeler truck. I want to hear your thoughts, though, on the iconic JBL limousine entrance. He comes out with the, the long horns on the big white limo. Love it. Fun fact about JBL. He had to lug around those stupid fucking horns with him everywhere. Because they would just rent a new limo and stick the horns in the front of them every time. That's really funny. I like that a lot. That sucks. I bet they're really heavy. And I bet they hurt to carry. Because there's no like no, no easy handle because the horns are like... They put them in like a big case, I think. Yeah. Oh, they have a case. Big old case. Oh. Oh, well, you think he's walking around with this big pointy thing. Yeah. Like, sir, you're going to have to check that in the... Over- uh, what? No. Oh, oh okay. Fine. Uh, can you take the case off this, sir? Now, I'm not sure what it was. Maybe we missed it earlier on. It was in this pay-per-view. But they did reference Taz's keys to victory that uh, might come into play in this one. As we know from our Survivor Series 03 review over on Patreon, keys to victory involve... Puns. Puns. Like invincible confidence Mm -hmm. and avoid the hole. Yeah. (laughs) The big old club to the back. John Bradshaw Layfield. He likes to hit people right in between the shoulder blades. I feel on some days when I'm a little bit, you know, done a lot of recording and editing, I'm all cricked up here. I could get a big, boom, big hammer to the back like that. Mm. Might, might, might sit me upright. I don't know. I feel it's more like a Heimlich maneuver type thing. Like you're choking <laughs> on a piece of lamb. It won't come out your mouth. It'll come out the other end. Like you. <laughs> <laughs> now there's an issue here. It's an I quit match. So you have the microphone. You have to actually say, "Hey, I quit. I give up. Whatever it is." WWE really making problems for themselves in the future here because they say things. This is a direct quote from Michael Cole. Taz, if you tap out, you lose your soul. Well, that's because JBL said that in the video package beforehand. He said, to say I quit means another man owns your soul. Whoa! Whoa, whoa. And like Taz is like, well, you know, you know tap out. That's kind of what happens. You, 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 it's a submission victory. You know, and like Taz is like the submission machine. He's like, please don't say that. Like, because no one's ever going to want to tap out ever again. And <laughs> lo and behold, issues down the line. So these guys head off into the crowd early enough. And definitely they're trying to go for this big hardcore brawl. But you can see that JBL is probably working harder to get John over here 
than to get himself over. I genuinely think that's the case in all of his matches. He's good at that and kind of taking a back seat as the heel, I guess, you but know? Like, I think as a heel, you never can take a back seat. You are the you're the, the, the front ride passenger. I know, but I say like. back seat in terms of like, the goal of this match isn't for everyone to think, oh, JBL. It's, right, it's, yeah. it's to think about John and all yeah, that. And to I think get him over. He does a real, like, yeah. John Bradshaw Layfield's one of the few people who the fans would unironically boo all the goddamn time. Yeah. And even when John Cena was at his stinkiest, they would still boo John Bradshaw Layfield over John Cena. And I think that he was a very good person to put with John right at the start. You know, because fans are booing for for JBL and they're cheering for Cena. Like, it's weird seeing a young Cena get embraced by the crowd like this. I don't think it was weird. John here is fantastic. He... He's so good. He's so like he's he's clumsier here at this point in his career. He kind of slips over a few times. He, he yeah. does. He's a bit more like he hasn't got control of his body. <laughs> Too but much birthday cake. His selling of the belt is fantastic. Oh, when he gets choked with it. When the, he gets choked with it. JBL yeah. yoinks a belt from someone's trousers at ringside. Yeah, I didn't like, quite catch whose. It was the timekeeper, I oh, believe. Okay. <laughs> at the point where John is in between JBL's legs, he's about to be powerbombed through the table, and the referee like has to go like right up to JBL's arse and be like, what do you say, John, do you quit? And he's like, his little head is peeking out like right by JBL's taint, and he's like, Hell no! <laughs> and then he pushes him through a TV. That was fucking incredible. He goes right. So th- good. Oh man, yeah. When they're up there and they're brawling in that kind of special zone, there's like a TV and he smashes and through. As you were saying, there is like there is kind of a frantic energy to it. They head up over towards John's big old truck, which is just laden with gimmicks for an I Quit match. I have to point out as well that John has bladed at this point. He's bleeding. Yes, he is, Joe. But I like this blade job. Now, I consider this a very... Uh, if I was a sommelier of blade Don't jobs... Don't fucking say that. Jesus Christ. If I was a sommelier of blade jobs... So I'm going to be pouring that red wine down the sink tonight and <laughs> drinking that. I would say that John Cena is like the master of this. He's the artisanal blader because... He's got to be kind of spiderweb of blood on him, hasn't it? It's only yeah. a small little cut mm. and he doesn't have the crimson mask. It grows throughout the match, which is exactly for me. That's what I want. The psychology of the match, I want it to build and swell as it But it, it never pours. It never pours. It never outshines the wrestling. I'm never distracted by the blood. It just only adds to it. Mm. And I think as well, when he's got that blood, there was a few moments where JBL... You know, he's so good here on the on the mic. He's he, like he's just you know kicking him in the face, going quit, quit. I said quit, John, quit. And when he started hitting him with the microphone, and it got all oh, sticky the with the blood the noises <laughs> and the feedback. Taz was literally begging Cena to quit. He's like, "Come on, John, it's not worth it. You got to stop." I'm like, whoa, tough man, Taz begging John Cena to quit. It's he's, he's got that feedback right in his ear. The thing that fired up John. Did you see what uh, what it was? It was JBL calling him a punk ass bitch. Oh. oh, yeah, don't do that to John. Absolutely not. <laughs> There's another time JBL asked him if he wanted to quit. And the microphone, I think it was from all the headshots and all the blood on it, it started distorting. Yeah. So they're like, John, do you quit? <laughs> it was like a YouTube poop. It was demented. Yeah. It's fantastic. So JBL up on the back of the flatbed truck here. It's one fucking wobbly setup they've got going on here. They destroyed the limo first. Blood all over the white limo. Mm-hmm. I guess we could have tell there was going to be a blade job. It was a white limo oh, there, course, you know. Yeah. 
the CO2 tanks on the back of the truck start knocking over. They're just spraying everywhere. It's like, again, like it's like proper, like they're just destroying, like a Lego game. They're mm-hmm. smashing everything up, everything's spinning around and blowing up. Big Door John smacks Bradshaw with the the door that he removes with some degree of, uh, of difficulty. He has to like run into it over and over again to make oh, it really? come off. He's like, Bruh. <laughs> I mean, he then made look a little bit harder than Brock Lesnar did when he ripped the door off, you I know, in recently. Yeah, yeah. You know? So JBL is covered in blood. He's just laid up against the ramp. He is begging off John. John grabs like I think it's an exhaust vent or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's the exhaust from his truck. He just picks it up and JBL immediately, he's on the floor cowering. It's like, I quit, I quit, I quit, I quit. Yes. I quit. That is the best quit ever in an I quit match. And he's basically saying it in a way that's like, kind of like when you're playing a game of tag and he's like, like I'm on home base. You can't touch me. Yeah. Nah, 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 I win. And there is a brief second where he's like, I may have lost the match and subsequently have lost the war but he didn't hit me with that big stick and then John hits him with it anyway and throws him through a fucking plate glass window yes that's amazing JBL bloody broken bits of glass sticking out of him his hair's all stood up on edge he looks looks a hundred years old fucking great and JBL lying in this heap Michael Cole goes huh JBL is mortal after all, Taz. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> no shit indeed. But I thought you'd like this because it's a bad man getting punished. Hmm. He's putting over someone that you like. Yeah. And I think the crowd at this up is just like a, mm-hmm. you know, this is like the you know, return of the king, good times all around, bad guy getting fucking destroyed. Yeah. How, how'd you get on with this? I was dreading this match when I heard it was an I quit match because I, every time I think of an I quit match, I think of that awful one between John Cena and The Miz. Oh God, I thought you were going to say like, I think of The Rock and Mankind. No, we think of Miz and John Cena. Awful. I think it's just because it's the first one I ever saw. Yeah. And it was for the one we did for the John Cena episode, I think. And it was just so boring. And it's a similar idea. Like kind of a coward versus big match John. Uh Except this time it just worked out so much better. Maybe because JBL is a more believable physical bully I guess I think yeah I think this was better for a couple of reasons one they were a lot more hard hitting like Mm. they were willing to go an extra mile with the one with the Miz there was a lot of like silly gimmicks and a lot of like do you you quit and then like hell no and like they're trying to be cool rather than intense survive yeah Yeah. it felt like they were in a fight here felt like they were in a fight here yeah I'll be honest I loved this match. I, I suspected you might. Adored it. It was so fun. John Cena is such a good super baby face. Yeah. Like JBL. Yeah, yeah. And the fact as well, though, that John isn't just like, he's not one of those like baby faces who is the underdog. John Cena is so big and muscular and kind of like. I don't want to say badass. That's not quite the right word, but he's like he's quite brutal in yeah, his yeah. wrestling style. I oh think yeah, partly because of his clumsiness. But it's funny because it's just with the right opponent here. Because yeah, you is, think yeah. of the years after this, where John would have these matches like that Miz when he mentioned, it, and, and it he felt just like, like obliterates them, and it's not yeah. fun anymore. But this, he has a proper challenger, tooth and nail. It felt yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm so glad. You, it's funny. Someone had suggested. That show, Judgment Day 05, has been a bad man getting punished oh, pay-per-view. Yeah. But I was like, no, Joe needs to see JBL, like, hear the story first 
before that is a contender. But if we ever do another Bad Men Punish pay-per-view in future, I'm sure this is worth a rewatch. Oh, yeah. You got on well with it, though. I got on really well with it. Yes! I gave it a perfect score. <gasps> five out of five. Yes! How about that? I know. Well, I, like I think, it. you know, as I was watching it, I had you know, half an eye on you, as I often do when we're, we're doing this, and you were like, you were glued to it. Like, I was, you, I you loved were... <laughs> it. Because it's just because, okay, no, JBL is not a nice person to wrestle, but I know that John Cena isn't a particularly nice person to wrestle either at this point in his career. Yeah. He's a bit of a clobber knocker, whatever it's called. Slobber knocker. And... <laughs> he is a slobber. <laughs> and so him wrestling JBL is fine because they're both going to just fucking beat the shit out of each other. And that's it's, it. That's great. I don't think John's there going like, I'm going to have to hit him hard so he respects me. I think John's like, I'm going to do my move. Oh, you've hit him hard. Yeah. You, John? Like, you know, I yeah. think it's actually he's kind of circumvented this whole kind of weird respect bullshit that goes on. And it reminded me a bit of, I can't remember who it was against, but we had Ken Shamrock against someone. Vader? It might have been Vader. Yes, I think it was Vader actually, yeah. And the idea of it being like someone backstage being like, oh God, that that heel we have, he's getting a bit big. Somebody needs to saw him settle yeah. his hands. Just, just needs to give him a receipt or two, but not intentionally. <laughs> well, that's it. This was, this was for as bloody as it was at points mm. and for as, you know, intense and physical or whatever you want to call it, WWE speak. Like I never at any point in the match was I really like kind of going, oh, like it felt like, all the big stuff like you know the the CO2 and the special TV and the table spot, it all felt gimmicked to fuck, very safe. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you want to have a hardcore knockout, drag out brawl and not worry that the guys who went into it, like I'm sure this, you know, it, it took its toll on both men, no doubt. But like I feel that's gonna be the case regardless of what matches they have yeah, exactly. because of their style. It felt like this worked to both men's strengths. And mm. this this for me marked the beginning almost of the end of JBL's like you know him being able to put on like a proper solid main event mm. because there was a period of this for end a year afterwards where okay right you've lost the title you're no longer the top guy but we're shuffling things around John goes over to Raw they tried to do him and Batista absolutely stank the joint like Batista in his book was like I don't know why those matches were so bad but don't watch them please they're so <laughs> bad and they are they were absolutely awful he wrestled Ray a lot again really really bad they just they didn't click or whatever it was but it kind of turned out towards 06 as we were heading in there that he was actually accruing a lot of injuries along the way and i think it was that run that kind of got into him but it was a big 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 piece of news along the way and something that we couldn't do a jbl episode without talking about and that is setting up for the iconic big match between john bradshaw layfield and the blue meanie on smackdown and this Fucking hell, cursed as it all is. This took place on the 7th of the 7th, 2005, a.k.a. the day of the 7-7 bombings. This exact show of SmackDown was not aired in its entirety in the UK because the end of this show involved unknown masked terrorists attacking The Undertaker on behalf of Muhammad Hassan, the evil Muslim character. Wow. And they wouldn't show it in the UK because they're like, that's bad taste. Oh my God. And one of those unnamed terrorists was Val Venus. There's a fun useless oh. fact for you. There you yeah. go. And uh, yeah, the next week, Muhammad Hassan was taken off TV and like, that's the end of that. No more of that, please. Thank you very much. Wow. But there was other business happening, mainly wrestling, political bullshit and... More bullying! Mm. Hey! What was your understanding of the Blue Meanie incident? It happened at the ECW reunion show, The One Night Stand. We've seen some of that for various episodes. Really fun show. At the end, they bring in all the ECW guys and they bring in these 
baddie WWE wrestlers led by JBL, Bischoff and Kurt Angle. What what happens? I still don't fully understand this. Mm. Okay. Uh, JBL made the Blue Meaning bleed a lot? Yes, a lot. But I don't know, because it seemed to happen in a match. So they were doing like a big brawl at the end of the show. And everyone was just kind of throwing hands. The idea is all the ECW guys. So throw not a match. Me. It's not a match. It's a, a brawl to end the show and send the right. crowd unhappy. The idea being, yay, ECW won. They and, they stand tall. And he hard weighed him. Yes. He punched him as hard as he fucking could. Which, okay, so this is the thing I don't understand, right? He did that all the time. Yeah. Not, I mean, there's a difference between working a stiff punch and punching someone full force in the back of the head because you know they have stitches. Oh my god! Yeah. So stitches. Oh, I remember now. He said he got them two days before. Didn't yeah. He? So at the same time as that ECW show, there was another ECW reunion show, kind of like an unaffiliated one for the guys who wouldn't get booked, like you know Shane Douglas and Raven and Terry Funk and stuff like that. And it was it was a decent enough show. It was two days before they did that in the ECW arena, the original. And, you know, most people who were on that show weren't allowed on the WWE show, but some of them had the blessing to work both. And it was mostly like the lower name guys, like the Blue Meanie or Tracy Smothers or whatever. And he got bust open that match, you know, that he had at the ECW, the, the, the non-ECW reunion show. Sandman hit him or something like that with a ladder and he got the back of his head split open. So he had like staples and stitches in the back of his head. Horrible. And, you know, everyone had been told beforehand, hey, you know, we're going to do a brawl at the end pair off just find someone you know and then we'll do some finishing moves and we'll we'll, we'll end the show on a high and Meanie was like all right i'll you know i'll grab one of the basham brothers <laughs> who are jbl's co-secretaries of defense me and the basham brothers will go over in the corner we'll just do you know some punches or whatever easy enough stuff and jbl as soon as the brawl started like you know laser focus went straight over to him pulled his shirt over his head and then started punching him full force in the back of the head Jesus. to the point where like you know you couldn't see what happened straight away but then you know the show ending brawl is over and there's blue meanie and he's got a crimson mask mm. and for me as a kid i love the blue meanie joe yeah you know i've, very, I've said the cinema swirl and I'm, you know you and i have bonded over a mutual love of the yellow submarine i always loved the blue meanie yeah and brian heffron you know as anyone who's ever going to adopt you know a character from that movie yeah, great, because he's a nice fucking guy, and he just you know was a fan. That's and all I know about him is just he's a nice, a nice guy. <laughs> he's a nice dude. He's a nice dude. He is, and doesn't deserve that at the worst. You know, at the best of times, yet alone you know on a big show where he's getting a bit of a break, and like you see him covered in blood, and it's like, well, this is like kind of cartoon comedy blue character. He's not even blue. He's the red meanie now because he's fucking covered in blood. And I remember like at the end of that show going. Oh, like it was like a bad vibe at the yeah. end of a very positive, happy show. And the reasoning for it is twofold. Firstly, all the ECW invaders, all the WWE guys were up mm. in the balcony. They were drinking all night. And they just had them up there and they're like, you just sit up there, have some cocktails, shout obscenities at the ECW fans. You don't want to be here. And JBL all night was just there milling beer after beer, shouting at anyone who would listen to him, screaming until he was hoarse in the face. Mm. And so he's obviously fucking ornery that way yeah but i watched this interview with the blue meanie and the reason that bradshaw didn't like him was that in 1999 when blue meanie began his get over it i know right this is fucking six years later oh my god in 1999 when the blue meanie had the start of his like eight month run in wwe him and stevie got brought in for you know big groundswell of ecw guys his first ever loop that he was doing, he was going to wrestle some shows in 
you know, New York, mm. then Philadelphia, and then go down to Connecticut. And he was like, okay, I'll go here, then I'll get my rental car, and I'll drive over here, and I'll drive down to Connecticut. You used to do it in ECW all the time. And then the referee, Earl Hebner, who was in charge of his travel, said, no, silly Billy, you're a WWE superstar. You get to fly now. And he'd never been on a fucking plane before. He's you no know, Eastern Seaboard yeah. guy. He's just there. Hey, I'm you know hitting the local towns, the ECWR. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh okay, I get to go in a plane. And because it was late, he had to return his rental car, and then they sent him out his ticket. Going right there, you go off to the airport with you. And he goes up to the airport, he gets his ticket, and it says seat one A on it. Mm-hmm. And because it was very very late, the Blue Meanie, his last minute booking, was given a first class seat. Mm-hmm. And he sits down in first class at the front of the plane, and it's him the big boss man and Shawn Michaels in this row. Oh, you know, so obviously something is standing out a little Actually, bit. Actually, can I ride coach, please? <laughs> but I'll he, go in the cargo, I don't care. He didn't even know. He was like, oh, seats are nicer up front, I guess. And you yeah, because of course you wouldn't know. No, you wouldn't know. How would you know? And you hear the back of the plane, like right at the back, Bradshaw going, what the fuck is the blue meanie doing up in first class? And when he arrives to pick up his bags, there's like six wrestlers come to him like, oh my God, you've messed up. You messed up. You've done such a bad thing. You messed up. And he's like, what do I do? You have to give your ticket to a vet. You should have known that. If you're given a first class ticket, you give it to a vet, obviously. You know, in this world of air travel, of which you've yeah, never, you've experienced, never experienced, experienced before. In a new company, which you've only just started working for. So here we go, six years later, a drunken JBL, who, by the way, has now been a world champion at this point, has got an extra grind with the fucking blue meanie who's just come to do his dance and have a fun time in the BWO. So that's that was the reason. That's why he targeted him. What a piece of shit. I mean, it doesn't say much about JBL, but compared to his other rationale for for bullying people, that this one seems particularly shitty. Does it make you feel like a big man, JBL, taking down the silly blue meanie man? Right. Does it make you feel like you've got a big willy, does it? It just... Does it make you feel like you're a big hard man? Well, blue meanie didn't you know go out and like you know cut a shoot promo or anything like that but people were talking about it i remember like on myspace at the time there was loads of myspace blogs with like did you that was a shoot what happened to blue meanie bradshaw attacked him for real and just you know had some problem with him whatever it was and all of us ecw fans were very slighted by this and this is how we come to jbl versus the blue meanie this is wwe trying to make good on this situation Mm. and say sorry to the blue meanie for what he was put through by giving him a little bit of a shot and an angle here, which involves him coming out with the rest of the Blue World Order, having stole Bradshaw's limousine, and they're all dressed up as him. Um, I'd, we might as well start with the, the the angle and stuff like that. <laughs> do you agree with this? Is like a I don't know. Is this like HR? I guess. Hey, we'll we'll do an angle to kind of make up for I for think, us. I think with things like this, it entirely depends on the people involved. And when I saw Blue Meanie come to the ring and faced JBL in this match, he looked sad. He did, didn't he? He wasn't his usual jovial self. He didn't look angry. He didn't look excited. He just looked like he didn't want to be there. And so as satisfying as it is for me to see what happens next, I don't think this is what the Blue Meanie, the guy who plays in my... Don't know his Brian name, Heffron. Brian Heffron. It doesn't seem like this is what he wanted. And but it feels like he couldn't say no to this either. Because no. if you say no, then you're, you, you, don't, you don't want to do business. Yeah. Oh, okay. I feel for a lot of wrestlers, this is exactly how they would want this to be treated. Yeah. And I can see why for certain people. 
but they should have just fired him. This is like if you were bullied in school and the principal's like, you know what we're going to do? You get to bully him. We're going to make the bully apologise to you in front of assembly. And none of you are to laugh. Yeah, it's Uh, that. Thanks a lot. We'll tell you what, the bully will have to explain himself to your parents in front of every student in school. Don't forget that girl you like as well. She'll be there. Yeah, and I'll I'll do it, Vince. Thanks very much. Yeah, is that really what is a good idea? Like, you've got this abusive bully man and then you've got the guy he's just beaten the shit out of and then they're gonna have like a match and it's just like he just looks a little bit scared and it's just like yeah. it's just like putting him in a worse situation and they should have just fired JBL they should have just fired him and then the blue mean he wouldn't be sad yeah. he wouldn't look scared and you wouldn't have to do weird sorry booking like yeah. you know and it, what the thing is is quite strange about it is that the lines are well and truly blurred for me at this point because you know, Blue Beanie's got killer lines like, I'm JBL, John Blue Lamefield. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And JBL, like, you were saying, like, wow, look at him go. Like, because he was working himself up. Yeah. He got so angry. He was bright red in the face. He was frothing at the mouth. Yeah. He hates the Blue Meanie way more than he hates the illegal immigrants coming over oh, the border. Uh-huh. And he was screaming at him. He says, you know, you're a joke. Your mom thinks you're a joke. Your daddy thinks you're a joke. You'll never be anything in this business. Mm-hmm. You could tie me to a tree and you couldn't kick my ass in a week. And he's screaming at the fans like, you shouldn't be endorsing this. He's not a wrestler. It shouldn't even be on this fucking show. And the trouble is, it's like, JBL's really connected. He's like BFFs with Mark Calloway, the Undertaker. Like, if he says that stuff, he can make it happen. And yeah. you know what? Brian Heffern didn't have a great career particularly after this point no yeah I wonder why is it because they didn't fire JBL if they'd just fired him this wouldn't even be an issue but it was like when you were pointing out like kind of how he was you know he made the crowd in the palm of his hand essentially in this segment and it almost felt like it was as much an apology to JBL that he had to go through all of this Mm -hmm. as it was to the Blue Meanie it's like oh look Bradshaw I know you didn't like having to put up all the people saying mean things about you online yeah and so you get to do this promo where you can say whatever the fuck you want about the Blue Meanie mm-hmm. and then have a match with him where for the first like couple of minutes and it's all a long match Bradshaw just beats the shit out of the Blue Meanie some more. Yep. Not as hard as he did at One Night Stand. No, but we know he's stiff and I can only imagine he was stiffer here. And Michael Cole doing his damnedest best to explain to the fans who may not know who the Blue Meanie is or what the fuck is going on is like, Taz, a personal rivalry from behind the scenes exploding here on SmackDown. But this is the thing, it's not even engaging viewing it's not fun there's no build there's no Taz story. can't explain it he's like oh, I'm not really sure if it's a personal uh, uh, rivalry or not you know. it's just shit yeah I mean they should have just if they really wanted to make good they should have just cut it down to you know Brian Heffern shouldn't have even been there. They should have just had Stevie Richards come out with a chair and just beat JBL up yeah. with a chair. And then that's it. Just that unprotected chair shot to the head and then they'll go home. Yeah, because you, know, you have JBL beating up the meanie, beating up Nova, beating up Stevie. Mm-hmm. He beats up all of his friends. He yeah. mocks his dance. But that chair shot from Stevie Richards. All I can say, Joe, is he's been watching his JBL tapes because oh, yeah. that's a receipt. Also, <laughs> one little minor thing I really appreciated from Stevie is uh, that he did it to the back of his head. Oh, baby! Which is way worse. Just like just like JBL did to Brian. And he bent that hard top part yeah. of the chair as well. So it's not even going to show. It's it not even going to look dramatic. So JBL doesn't get all of that all of that attention. It's going to hurt more. It's going to probably do more damage in the long run because you've got softest part of the skull there. Yeah, the, the stock went down a little bit after that yeah. chair shot, let me tell you. It, to the point when Batista comes out to do his run-in and he spine busters Batista and puts Meanie on top, 
he literally is laughing when he comes yeah. out because I think he's like, wow, what I didn't I know doing? Stevie had it in him. Like, I don't even need to come out here. Like, this man is already done for, yeah. like, you know. So the meaning does pick up a win over JVL. And, like, I remember for me, as a, you know, watching this, being very conflicted it was the very definition of bittersweet i just don't think i don't think the blue meanie should have been there i think i was never more aware of the artifice of wrestling than i was really at that point Mm. because i felt at that point i'd read books i watched shoot interviews i'd read about this on myspace i knew what was going on and then this happened and i'm like even if you know what's going on you as a fan are pretty powerless to watch these events unfold and it always makes me wonder should we even be privy to this? Because the more you know about this, the more miserable it is, really. You know? It's a nice chair shot, though. Let me let me tell it's you. It's a great chair shot. Good job, Stevie. But who is it for? I feel it's for the boys. I feel it's for people like Stevie who want to know that they work in an industry where if that happens to them, they can get their own back. But Brian Heffern isn't like that. He doesn't thrive on violence. He's just a fun, nice guy who wants to be silly. I think he was happy that he got... You know, they did do a little... You know, another couple of shots with the BWO. They did get to hang around on SmackDown for a little bit. So it wasn't just this yeah. and nothing else. But I just feel like this doesn't add to the Blue Meanie's story. Like, I don't... No one needs that. Like, the Blue Meanie is obviously for kids. You don't need to do this for kids. Kids yeah. don't like this. This is some weird internal HR bullshit it's just fucked up and I really don't like Again, it. Again, could you imagine them trying to do it like if there was an issue with between wrestlers now and like someone who's not even under contract, eh, we'll bring you in, we'll make up a special weird match for you to, yeah. to make you feel better. But, you know, Meanie probably had a lawsuit on his hands. I know. You know? Yeah. And uh, as well as if the self-made millionaire doesn't have, uh, you know, money to go after. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that says a lot about Brian Heffron is that he didn't, he obviously didn't want to get anything from this. No. He just didn't want it to happen. Because you're still, unfortunately, even if you're a nice guy, you're under the yoke of the expectations of what the business is and of what's expected of you, you if know? If he had sued JBL, he'd have had even <gasps> less of a you're chance not one of the success. boys. Yeah, you know? Oh absolutely. my God. You know? Shit. I know. It's ridiculous. And it's obvious as well, like, the real reason JBL picked on him is not because of that. I mean, I'm sure it contributed, the whole airline No, it's thing. because he's fat and he doesn't look like he belongs. he's fat and he's weird looking and he's nice. Which is he's exactly fat. why I like the Blooming. Yeah, exactly. That's why he's so great. So, I mean, I had to ask you for a match rating for this. It might be more of a uh, of a chair shot rating. Potentially. If I'm just rating the chair shot, I give it a five out of five. <laughs> but I feel I can't because there's so many other bits to this which I didn't like. And honestly, seeing the Brian Heffron's eyes was it? There's a line Taz said in one of the earlier matches. He said, "The eyes of the window to the soul, Cole." I talk about people's eyes a lot, but eyes tell a story. And um, actually, that sounded more like Brett. <laughs> story. No eyes tell a story. Um, well, not for nothing, Cole. <laughs> Them eyes tell a story. Heads up! Hit the deck! <laughs> I I just didn't think this was healthy. I felt like I, you know, this if did... I didn't explain it as much as I did, mm. I felt I would be withholding from you. But I also regret explaining it as much as I did because I feel like that sapped the fun out of it for you almost. No, there was no fun in it for me. Mm, okay. I mean, the chair shot... Yeah, but like I could see that without knowing anything about anything and I would enjoy a chair shot to JBL because I know he's a big bully. Yeah, there you go. But just seeing a person who I know is nice come out at what is supposed to be their big opportunity. It's for them. Calling this an opportunity, Jesus Christ. No, right? and it's just, it made me sad and it, yeah, just made me think of school. And yeah, like, yeah, readers your JBL nice does. Who get, who get bullied and like, then it's like, yeah, as you said earlier, I just, I just don't like it. JBL reminds me of like, 
bullies you see in you know in school as a student and bullies you see as a teacher who mm-hmm. you know teachers who are bullies yeah. you know bosses who are bullies mm-hmm. and for every moment it feels like you get where it's like yeah he gets it he knows what he is it's like yeah he does but like then there's an infrastructure in place that's like okay so sort this out then and then they're like no no the be a star campaign is starting around this time as well which i think is very interesting that he was under the company at the same time it would have been so easy to fire him I know. just <laughs> fire the bad man but no he's vince's guy I that's know, it you I know he's vince's it. guy and the thing about vince is vince Always liked him, but Vince loved that character. Because Vin- yeah, if the million, you know, if Vince was a character in wrestling, he would have been the million dollar man. And this was like the new million dollar man. So Vince was too invested in the guy and the character to ever even remotely consider that. I just, I can't relate because like, yeah, I agree. I love the character of JBL and I love seeing him get punished probably even more than Vince McMahon does. Like genuinely, I love it. But I don't want this to be the way that they deal with these situations. Yeah, seriously. That doesn't make me feel good. So JBL ends up at the end of 05 taking a sabbatical. He retires from in-ring competition. He is simply too banged up with too many nagging injuries. His back in particular. I know in that match with Cena, he landed right on the fucking corner of the table. <laughs> he Jesus, did. caught him right on the waist. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> So he had to retire. He went on and became a commentator for a stint on SmackDown, him and Michael Cole. And I still maintain there's got to be some good commentary times between those two. But this is not the... I mean, maybe because I was, you know, too depressed about doing another fucking Billy Cable boys pick. So I didn't really pick up whether the commentary was fun or not. Mm. But I maintain he was better than he was when he was just shouting the phrase ball game over and over again in 2017. That's all I remember. Ball game! (laughs) Big match, John! Ball game called his shot, and his shot was ball game. So that's Lisa uh, needs braces. Ball game. <laughs> ball game. <laughs> so JBL does return in 2007. I had to show Joe the segment where he comes back. He comes to Raw to return to the ring, and he just raises his hand, and Pyro goes off, and the entire segment is around 12 minutes long, I believe. Does he say anything? He just goes sternly. Gives, you know, the eyes tell a story, Joe, as Taz yeah. would tell you. But, you know, it's mostly, he has the pyro do the talking. Mm. Oh, and he also says he's back as well, you know. All right, yeah. So, so that, that's that's good to know. But when he came back, it was noticeably at like, a, right, you're the challenger. You're not going to be the champion. You know, he did some stuff with John. There was a quite a memorable feud he did. I think we'll look at it when we do our HBK episodes where they did the idea that Shawn Michaels was broke because I made some bad investments. <laughs> I know JBL owns my ass. And the idea was that he was JBL's employee. He's like, oh, you know, you're like with Wardlow and MJF. It's like, right. oh, you know, I'll get you a title shot, but you know, you got to do something for me first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd have his performance appraisal and stuff like that. So they still, again, as the character, he worked well in promos. Like, I remember the thing I showed you with him and CM Punk where he challenges them to a drinking contest. But, you know, the actual matches were, you know, he, he was getting more and more limited in the ring that's the thing when you are a strong style a stiff style whatever you want to call it you have to be physically able to do it you have to be strong enough to do it you just slow down i think and you you can't do that effectively long term yeah especially if you're getting weak and in pain i mean i figured always a lot of the reason why he hung on wrestling for as long as he did was because it worked very well for his outside interests you know? oh i bet because you know he was showing up with his mama joanna energy drink on raw and it's like mm. oh that's really funny you've got a product ha 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 look at jbl he's got a product and it's available now yeah on the website and how many people are watching raw in 08 09 probably like you know still over a million people you Is know that business still going 
I think Layfield Energy still exists. I but I don't gonna, think Mama Joanna Energy. I'm does. gonna have to do a deep dive into this and find out if it was shut down for health and safety reasons. Because mm. I just know the drinks industry in America is fucking shady. Yeah, and I think technically Mama Joanna Energy does not qualify for the FDA definition yeah. of a drink. Yes. It's it's a sports liquid, Joe. Okay. It's an art <laughs> installation. <laughs> It's a parody of an actual drink. Yeah, it's a gimmick for a wrestling show. <laughs> <laughs> so JBL heads into WrestleMania 25. The WrestleMania that's iconic because it has Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. And I maintain it's iconic because it's the one WrestleMania I went to. So I like to big it up for being a bigger deal oh, than yeah, it was. Oh yeah, you're in this one. And look, I did pause the screen a lot during JBL versus Rey Mysterio. Just to show my fiancé... That I was on screen a few times. Yeah, and are. if you're judging at home, you just wait until you have a fiancé. Because you wouldn't understand otherwise. Mm. It's a special fiancé to fiancé thing. I think you just wanted to show me how much you've glowed up over the years. Yeah, even on the soft, out-of-focus hard cam, Kevin did not look like he was living his best life in 2009. <laughs> nice cattle mutilation t-shirt though, big man. Good job on that front. Yeah. But it's JBL versus Rey Mysterio for the Intercontinental Championship. And I love this promo at the start because he kept saying that he was going to come back to this home state of Texas as the world champion. And here he is as the intercontinental champion going, I did what I said I'd do. I said I'd come back as champion. And I'm here as champion. And he just runs down Texas with your lattes and your pilates and you can't get a job when no sports. I hate my own hometown of Texas. It's a brilliant just a brilliant spin on it though i do i the, love it yeah the, the texan guy hating texas i know because he went to somewhere so much better new york city yeah. like you know so heel especially i know we've mentioned it on this podcast before about the texans hating new york oh yeah and that rivalry between those two states it's just so funny it's hilarious i love that particularly because around this time as well he was actually like he was really hating living in new york city apparently really, yeah. and his wife was encouraging him to spend like time out of the year when he was trying to recuperate to move to bermuda uh oh which is we all know for tax reasons yeah, it's also very good for the soul uh-huh. my uncle worked there for a while yeah so uh yeah that, that's the uncle who also worked for a playboy right joe yeah cool uncle duncle savvy uncle duncan <laughs> cool unky donkey but uh yeah jbl now lives full-time in bermuda as well oh does he actually tropical climate works very well for him real talk because uncle duncan also worked and lived in texas he's for a long time definitely met jbl and he was the manager of a really famous hotel i bet you he's met jbl i'm gonna ask him i swear because we've talked to your uncle before about wrestling he's like i'm pretty sure i was I've running some wrestlers yeah i'm gonna find out i'm pretty sure one of my bouncers became yeah. world champion <laughs> <laughs> and jbl promises here the most dominant victory in wrestlemania history and this was this match was the furthest from our minds we were like hyped up for wrestlemania 25 Barely, I might add. We were not excited about this match because these guys never had a good match as far as we were concerned. Me and my buddy who were traveling and the last time they had a match, JBL's back still worked. But at the fan access the day before, JBL came out and he just grabbed the mic and he went off for 90 minutes. He was just looking at people in the crowd saying this and then he'd do callbacks to, you know, Canada sucks and the beer in that state for you're from in the crowd. He just worked us all in the crowd. He just did a 90 minute heel bit. That's amazing. And it was incredible. It was like watching, 
know, it was like watching like, if someone who's really good at stand-up just come into a room and go, oh, okay, and do the material. It sounds a bit like Stuart Lee. Like, yeah. Like, he's almost, like, dividing the audience up and then playing them against each other. He worked us off against each other. He spotted the, you know, the, the people who all had fucking flags and shit, the, the access. Liberals, yeah. That, and he knew exactly what to do. And when he was asked by a fan, you know, fans to do Q&As with him, and then the fans asked, what's going to happen tomorrow with your match? And he started laughing. He goes, you have no idea what you're going to see tomorrow in this match. What you're going to see has never happened before. And I guarantee you, it will be the most important moment in JBL's career. And we were like, what's happening? Is Farouk coming back? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and this is what it is. He knew what was happening here. He's setting up his own downfall because, folks, this match isn't really much of a match at all. His opponent, Rey Mysterio, comes out dressed as Heath Ledger's Joker. Mm. I don't know if you caught uh, JR's great line that he had here. No. Jerry Lawler goes, wow. Rey Mysterio's paying tribute to Heath Ledger's Joker. Oh, God. And then Jerry goes, well, I suggested Rey's career's alive and well. That was cut off the DVD I owned of this. It's still on the network. Fuck you, Heath Ledger. You never, never respected this business in the first place. I feel making a joke about Heath Ledger being dead in 2022 would get you remarks from people going, oh, it's too soon. Too soon, isn't it? Like, that's weeks after it, was. it happened. Joe, I just got the Blu-ray of The Dark Knight. I had Dark Knight fever. And lots of people in the audience had it too. And yeah, all I can say is I was glad I couldn't hear it on the night. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> I, I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. Rey Mysterio's dressed as the Joker. But uh, didn't seem to impact any of that much, living in a society as you do. Jokerified Rey Mysterio. I didn't like it. He came out, he certainly was licking his lips like Heath Ledger. Yeah. He had special cards that he handed out to everyone. And on those cards, there was a little Rey Mysterio Joker and said, do something with your life, you little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we noticed that JBL has stocks on his Titan Tron. Yes, this was great. His little mini Tron all around yeah. the ring. Yeah, and they actually are custom. They're not. They're not like just stocks. There's some little little There's gags in little there. Gags. Yeah, like Pyro is up eleven. Yeah. JBL is up ninety nine. Oh, looks good for JBL. Bye now, folks. WB is up nine. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. The BBC is down by 24. Damn liberal intelligentsia, you champagne socialists. Now, (laughs) I want to know, was JBL involved in the making of that little titantron or was it the people making the titantron did their homework and they were like okay let's find like the mainstream liberal i figured i figured it's <laughs> i figured it's that yeah like because it's like you know it can never be said enough wwe has got like such an amazing crew of people who never ever ever i think kevin owens and stone cold are the only two people i've ever seen go hey by the way the people who make all the shit that actually makes this show work give them a fucking round of applause please yeah. because yeah that little detail really added to it i mean yeah this is what how many years later wrestlemania 2009 13 so 13 years. years later and we're still getting great joy from those tiny little details i loved it so the bell doesn't ring jbl just starts you know i wish there was a bit you know what i know we're saying bully was a bad way to describe him i wish there was a better way to describe his in-ring style other than bully yeah because i feel like i'm saying the word bully a lot for very know, different contexts this episode yeah. don't like that a lot but look, the pre-bell beatdown doesn't last long. Ray ensures the referee that he is okay. He will start the match. The bell rings. 619. JBL loses in a historic, never before seen for an Intercontinental title match at WrestleMania. 21 seconds! Now, I have a question. Yeah. Why is it 
that when Rey Mysterio did the 619 mm-hmm. and then went to go pin JBL. Drop that dime. You were the only person in the whole arena who stood up. It's because I knew what was happening, Joe. How did you know what was happening? Because I had been thinking about this non-stop all f- Look, when you go to WrestleMania, and this was 13 years ago, mind, you stand in queue for fucking six weeks to get in, right? Okay. And they make you really hot, and then they sell you a beer for $100, and then they pour it down the drain in front of you. And then you get to go into the coldest place in the universe uh-huh. and watch 9,000 hours of wrestling, one yeah. after the other. So I had a lot of time to think. What and you thought this is going to be a 21 second match? I was thinking that something was going to happen with JBL. I thought that he was going to like leave, but I didn't think like... But 21 seconds. Is it because he did the 619? Yeah, because that's, that's Ray's finisher. I thought, right, he's doing this, 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 this like, it. it's over. For me, I come from a world where wrestlers do their finishes like 20 times in a match. Yeah, you didn't come from the boring world of 2009 WWE Joe. Maybe two finishers How in a match. was it you? Like... You would have thought there's loads of fans there who would have been in that situation. You know, they all queued. Well, they weren't real. They didn't win the access brain challenge like I did, Joe. I defeated three 12 year old children with my knowledge of. (laughs) With my knowledge of. of Mr. Barber Beefcake being brutally injured in a hang gliding incident. I was like, sorry kids, you're not real fans. That was Bruce Beefcake, yes, and the the eyes did come out of the skull. Thank you very much. I'll take I like a free picture with the WF belt I don't even like. I hate the spinner belt. Take my picture, take my picture. But yeah, I was I was convinced something was gonna happen. I think it was just my gut wrench reaction of like something happened, I was right. Ah! But everyone listening to this, I beg you go back and watch this short match because you can see in this crowd, top left corner sea of people who are all like bemused. Yeah. Just saying, no one gave a shit about this. They're one. all like, this match will be 20 minutes. And Kevin immediately, bright yellow t shirt, jumps up. You're so tall as well. You're really noticeable. Yeah, he's been really tall back then. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, I worked that giant gimmick down in Texas. They put the mm. one arm strap on me, shaved my head off, you know, worked for a little bit, you know. I'm just amazed that they didn't cut you out or focus on you. <laughs> it's distracting that you're there. Yeah, I could have had a career as a super fan, not all this podcasting shit where I have to do stuff. Yeah. God damn it, I could have been the next Frank the Clown, Joe. Yeah, God, I could have been engaged to Frank the Clown. <laughs> Yay! You could have been the Noel Foley of how to wrestling, like. Aww. Just a reminder of that for everyone at Are home. Are they still together? Yeah. No. They're very happy. Well, they're that's very, good. They're very happy. I'm glad. And what I love most about the aftermath of this, JBL just doesn't lose his belt and lose in his home state after running down all of his hometown folks. He grabs the microphone and he's like, I, I got something to say. Ha, ha. And the crowd are all like, Fuh. like, they're not even like chanting goodbye. They're just like, no, <laughs> I just don't want to hear from him. And for the first time in his very mouthy career, John Bradshaw Layfield is at a loss for words and then just goes, I quit. And, and that's it. That's the end of his wrestling career. And also even better is that since he got the pin, he had a big bogey. Yes, he's a big smelly bogey on his yeah. face. And he walks up the ramp all like kind of shell-shocked and then halfway up and the fans are screaming at him he starts turning around and almost regretting his decision. He's like, you're going to regret this. You'll be begging me to come back. This company's going to be nothing. It's going to go down the toilet. It'll be nothing. And here we are 13 years later without a JBL match and we're doing just fine. Yeah, but it <laughs> undercut it by hiring him on commentary. Yeah. They could have done something beautiful there and just sent him off into the sunset. Into the sunset. We'll never have to see him again. I 
love that as the end of that character as a wrestler. Yeah, it's a perfect end. Chris Jericho once said in some documentary WWE did, it's like, when you're a bad guy and you leave, I don't want you to have this big send-off where they give you your flowers and you cry. What should happen is you should just fucking go and people be like, oh, remember that guy? I didn't like him. (laughs) And that's kind of what it was like with JBL. And we did get at least a little break before he immediately came on commentary because he was down in Bermuda, Joe, working on all sorts. He launched his website, The Layfield Report. He started climbing mountains, raising money for charity. And in his own words, in his own words, noticed the proliferation of black-on-black violence in Bermuda and felt so affected by what he was seeing and all the young people who were being roped up into gangs and stuff that he started this charity that is kind of an offshoot of this kind of uh, other worldwide sporting charity. But the idea is basically get kids who are being targeted by gangs, get them playing rugby, community spirit, don't be in gangs. Okay. And he is now a fellow of that organization, along with Tony Blair. So okay. there you go. Like, is that as wholesome as it's made out to be? Or is it because it's a charity write-off and it's where he lives, where he also doesn't have to pay taxes? And cynical Kevin has entered the chat. Joe, it's a charity very close and near and dear to where he lives. Yeah. So, you know, but look, I'm not saying it's not good work. I'm sure it's good work. It is. Yeah, great. Good I mean, job. I think any type of charity work is, is beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And more wrestlers should be doing charity yeah. work. And particularly the ones who are self-made millionaires. Well, that's the thing. I kind of feel, <laughs> if you've been world champion for any time, type of long period of time which i would count jbl as as that i feel it's the bare minimum to yeah. do charity work yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and honestly i think you should be doing charity work all over the world not just where you live but look you know what the one thing i will say about it is that it was obviously good for him to get out of the wrestling business and have other interests because he's a lad who could have been a backstage ghoul for Vince McMahon and be one of the fucking right-hand producer guys and he would have fucking hated it and everyone working under him would have fucking hated it as well. He's much better suited to doing those other interests. I know he does a podcast with Jerry Briscoe that was meant to be a bit of fun and I think it's better that he's out with those other interests and has the Cushy Legends deal because generally speaking, as much as I love the man's in-ring career, I think wrestling, not just the WWE, is better off without him being actively involved in it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't even like the small involvement he has. I would rather him be gone. Well, I mean, he was brought back for commentary and never... The, 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 when Smackdown was its own brand we had Morrow on commentary with yeah. David Otunga and, and JBL. He made it much worse. He made worse. it much worse. And that was besides the point then of the bullying that took place again yeah. with Mauro Ranallo. Which again makes it considerably... You've got one of the most talented people in the industry who left as a direct result of JBL. Yeah, and he's, you know, he never he never came back 100% from that. He came back and did some stuff in NXT. Yeah, but he never will. <laughs> but he, he yeah. never... we Wrestling lost that. Yeah. And I look, I know Mauro has bipolar. He's had a, a very open about his struggles with that. And I don't think that's a reason to go, ah, oh, well, he's too sensitive, JBL, to do anything wrong. Bipolar Opposite, dis- mate. Bipolar like. disorder is not caused by being bullied. No. Like, it's... But the thing, I think... Everyone that- can be a victim of bullying and abuse. It has nothing to do with mental health conditions. And again, that led to this kind of, you know, new wave of JBL, you know, coming out with statements denying him being a bully. Everything I say on camera, I'm a, I'm, I'm a heel, I'm a character. So if I said anything disparaging about Morrow, it was only the fact that I was a heel and I was a character. I'm like, well, you I know think what? Then- I think that people backstage... You really think that switch turns off 100%? I don't well, think so. I just think if you're having to make excuses like that, you're not very good at your job. If yeah. you can't separate 
you know, if it's if it's getting to the point where people are leaving because of your actions as a heel, you're not a professional. Because yeah. professionals understand that it's a character and understand where the boundaries are. It's a work. You know, you're meant to work together. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a work if you're just targeting the guy who's probably been given assurances that he won't be involved in anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of it's you know, compare and contrast like Jerry Lawler making fun of Stu Hart and fucking JBL talking over Marrow and ruining, ruining his job. You mm-hmm. know, it gave Stu Hart fucking life, I'm sure, to be mentioned by a heel on commentary. Great. Yeah. Marrow was trying to do his fucking job and he mm-hmm. did such a good job at it. And I really, you know, I don't think he's the sole reason. I think wrestling as a whole was not suitable for Marrow Ronaldo. It's still, even now in 2022, too toxic a place for him, I believe. I think there is a way that he could work in wrestling and it would be, you know, achievable but i don't think in wwe no and you know what there's so many times when the bullying stuff came up about bradshaw and so many of the wrestlers we watched discuss this where they just kind of like ah well you know you're in wwe you're going to be kind of miserable so it's just part and parcel Mm -hmm. and i think that's such a miserable miserable thing to do at a place where everyone is like is it for you? Oh, I'm going to Disneyland. I get to work for WWE. I know. And you you're going to be miserable. Everyone's miserable. We're all miserable here. He is sometimes unfairly labelled as the poster child for all hazing and bullying in wrestling. And I think as we discussed here, he's not necessarily the sole root of it. But I think when you think of the spectre of bullying in wrestling, ask any wrestling fan between the ages of 15 and 45 they'll probably mention jbl as the guy and not go oh the character was such a bully they're probably like no he was actually i think he was a real life dickhead you know separating the man and the character Mm. i don't know how easy has it been for you because i think the more i've done this episode the harder i've actually found it i don't think you can separate them they are too closely aligned they are not exactly the same they're not one and the same it's when it's convenient they're not the same yeah (laughs) but i would say it's to the it's the same thing as vince mcmahon there's you can't separate them and anyone who tries to is being worked you know what's really interesting joe all the love vince mcmahon has for jbl for john layfield and yet he's never referred to him as having a father-son relationship. I know. Is he one of the only people we've ever had who's yeah. been in that position, who's not been like a son to him? But maybe we didn't watch many interviews with JBL. He's maybe not talked about it. him and Vince that much. Yeah. You know, he's kind of closed off about that I, a little I bit. I bet, though, if he did, if you could get him talking about Vince, he would say that. I love you, my giant Texan son. And I love you, problematic dad. Let's check out your tweets about jbl i'm gonna need to say as well joe i don't think i've mentioned it that theme music i've caught you humming it around the house since we've done it isn't it i love it adam biblo once described it like you're queuing up for the most exciting log flume ride ever that's really absolutely agree more cows in wrestling (laughs) first up from i like james too oh me too JBL is someone who perplexes me because I've got plenty of entertainment out of him as a parody of right-wing America, yet I still know that it's not a parody as much as living a gimmick, leaving me unsure of really how much credit he should get as a shoot dickhead. And that blends into other aspects of his being too. I love the clothesline from hell because it looks incredible every single time, and yet I know partially because he's consistently making himself look good over the safety of his dance partners. Yeah, I think that is very much that's that's fair. That is you know fair fair an assessment right there. And I think he's got both an in-ring style and a persona that he can explain away when it suits him. Yes, it's very convenient, isn't it? I just feel people like that shouldn't be allowed to work in wrestling because they can't be trusted. They've proven they can't be trusted. Mm. They take liberties 
they're just here to manipulate people and play the stupid games. I know what, we're a long way off. It feels like there ever being some sort of like, you know, a union for wrestlers or whatever it is. And I hate, hate every year that passes. It feels like it's no closer. It is even I think we're further away. Further actually, away, yeah. if anything. But like, at least there is this semblance of an idea that you get in the locker rooms that a bully like that wouldn't be tolerated. I fucking hope. You know? Hope. But like, I'm trying to think, who's this generation's JBL? And I'm struggling to think. I can tell you exactly who as a character. Is it MJF? No. Who is it? It's Baron Corbin. <laughs> That's a light, seriously. cuddly version though. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But like, seriously, because... He parodies kings. <laughs> he parodies kings. But like... Even his wrestling style is quite similar. Like, Baron Corbin isn't quite stiff, but he certainly looks it. He's meant to be high impact. You think of the clothesline Baron Corbin gives, and it's like the the JBL one. Yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. Only the difference is, Baron Corbin is genuinely a lovely person who no one has anything bad to say about. Yeah, fan interactions with him always seem to be very positive. He similarly came from an American football background, and when he started his career, I believe he was a bit of a shithead. And then he actually took the time to listen and make friends with people and learn about the industry. And he's I think he is as effective as a heel as JBL is, if not more so, because he doesn't need to resort to this shittiness of bullying. And you're not going to... I mean, I, I would agree. Like, I mean, I obviously prefer JBL's like heel promos to Baron Corbin's, but I feel in terms of a suitability to a brand... Yeah. You know, WWE isn't going to be happier with a heel talker than they are with Baron Corbin yeah. in 2022. You know, he's and their ideal, I Baron would say. Baron Corbin, you know, JBL, okay, we love JBL's character with all the anti-immigration stuff. But, like, there are lots <laughs> no, of... you say that. So... <laughs> Specifically, <laughs> we, we like the the parody of the far-right Americanism. Yeah, okay. But there's a lot of people who live in America today... Or, and even at the time, who felt that was just too close to home. I can imagine if it was too close to home then, watching that yeah. now. I so mean, yeah, how, effect- how effective is that really then if it's not effective for everyone? Baron Corbin is a universally loathed heel without having to resort to anything like that. Yeah, I think the problem with the longevity and looking back on JBL's character is that the country that he was in turned way more heel than his character ever did. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next up from Tom G. Watson... While he is undoubtedly a toxic piece of shit, I'm not sure he's worse than Vince, Stone Cold, Undertaker, and others. He's too low down the food chain. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. I think he is probably... And also, I think you're mixing apples and oranges there in terms of problematic people, you know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, Stone Cold is toxic in a relationship way. He didn't seem to be toxic in a, a locker room way. No, he, he was, a, he was a, an abuser in his private life. Yeah. I don't think... Austin as ornery and cagey as he was he was too introverted Mm -hmm. to actually take the time to bully people like that I would think you know and for all my issues with The Undertaker and I think he is a toxic piece of shit as far as I know The Undertaker didn't literally rip out someone's stitches on some personal beef it so, feels like he he would view himself as being above that. That's yeah. the thing. I think JBL, even when he became a top guy, still viewed himself as like the loyal lieutenant, mm-hmm. you know, working for the guy who's making sure that the... Re- hey, we did it. We did it. We protected the business. Yeah. <laughs> now from F Hell Tiger. For however good he could be as a wrestler, all I can think about whenever he's on screen is how many talented wrestlers we missed out on watching because of his years of bullying and hazing. Absolutely. I think, you know, as we mentioned right at the start with the Don Callis stuff, it's like, you know, it 
you never know what is. I'm not going to say like every person who runs around out of a company is like, ah, great, we, we saw into the future. I mean, like how many people have we talked about who are viewed as being like an also ran or like, you know, the black sheep of the promotion and they end up becoming the biggest star in the company. Like if we've learned anything from looking at wrestling is that no one, not even the select few who run companies is particularly adept at predicting who could be a star mm -hmm. and if you're just driving people off in droves and scaring them away i mean hey it works well if you're a villain in scooby-doo i don't think it's the best way to foster a new generation of talent no, that's just me not. though you know i mean hey you know it i always think like someone like the miz for instance who yeah. i know is a contentious person but like if jbl had his way the miz would be wouldn't have been in that company yeah and, and how much worse would wwe be for that yeah i mean hey you may not like watching it at home but that company relies on that guy you know you can't deny how yeah. important he is like no marine movies yeah and also like outside of wrestling the charity work yeah jbl bragging about his fucking charity work that he does in bermuda well the miz is one of the biggest contributors to the make a wish Foundation foundation that has ever been in the whole world almost as much as john cena imagine if they liked him yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> on the opposite end of the spectrum then we have our soul jbl fan ah john thanks for joining the chat <laughs> this is from linda fan one this is from farouk man <laughs> <laughs> I've been a big fan of his since his WWE debut. I love his hard-hitting style, that clothesline, and his incredible promo skills. Yeah. I met him recently in Liverpool, and in spite of what the Smarks think, he was incredibly kind, friendly, polite, and attentive to the fans. Yeah, because you're not trying to come into the business at a time when he thinks that you shouldn't. Yeah. If you meet JBL now, the retired guy, and you're a fan, like, yeah, you're going to have a fucking good time, probably. Because he's well-spoken, he's polite, and he knows how to do it. Yeah, he's a professional. We're not saying that, oh, oh, what's that? You didn't get bullied by him 30 years after the fact. Oh, guess he wasn't a bully then. Also, it comes back to the classic abuser situation, which is abusers are manipulative people and they will never show their true colours in front of the people whose opinions actually count. Well, like, I think for someone like him, like, when did it come out? Like, when did all these things with him that were bad come out? It came out when he was, you know... You know, working on the road 300 days a year and all that it was mm -hmm. that environment yeah you know and as much as we like to kind of go oh, oh bullies have just been bullied themselves well most often though bu bullies who come out of fucking nowhere it seems they're a product of their environment mm -hmm. and i think that yeah i'm not saying that because someone's accused of bullying in the past that you as a fan can't have a cordial nice time meeting them hey i'd fucking love to meet him and shoot the shit or whatever it is yeah. but like that's not changing the fact that these things historically did happen. I think if I met Vince McMahon, he'd be very polite. Vince is meant to be great with fans. But I like, fucking hate him, though. He's it's, an evil piece of shit. There's a reason why we're coming past the three-hour mark, folks. is because <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next from Mick M90. My opinion on him has varied so much over the years. I used to legitimately hate him. Then I admired him. At the ripe old age of 31, I've settled on this. JBL is one of the finest on-the-pulse heels of the 2000s, but he is also one of the worst humans wrestling has spat out. <laughs> I, I kind of feel I agree with you there. That's a, that's a nice way of putting it. And as I'll often say, you know, on this podcast, and I know that most of the people who kind of feel this way are probably not listening to this episode, us covering a wrestler is not an endorsement of that wrestler all around. Wrestlers are humans, they're complicated people. There's more to it than that. you got to kind of go into all the layers and all that. And I kind of feel like if we're judging wrestlers and saying we're going to cut someone off of like, you know, being part of the wrestling history or being considered or being, you know, say that you could enjoy them or whatever. 
You know, you can start from the top down, Vince McMahon, and work backwards. You won't have a lot of wrestlers left to talk about, is all I'm no. saying, you know? Last one now from Noah Way Home. Oh, you've got a smile on your face. This has got to be a good one. Yeah. I wish Blackman's foot didn't get caught in that bag. <laughs> oh, yes! You know this story, right? I do. Do you want to tell the audience? Right, so the best I understand about this story was that Steve Blackman, who is legitimate shoot badass, like rip a phone book in half. Hardest men in wrestling. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. As in Shane McMahon ran up that Titan Tron for real because he was scared. (laughs) You know, current bounty hunter Steve Blackman. (sighs) He was a guy who came into wrestling, had a hard start. We'll get into that when we do an episode on him, I'm sure. But he was a target of bullying, inverted commas, hazing, you know, all that fucking shit. Because he's the new guy. Oh, he's meant to be a tough guy, is he? Mr. Karate, all this shit. JBL was fucking with him, fucking with him, fucking with him, and basically he he vowed that he was going to kick the absolute shit out of him. And he went, literally, he was walking over to sweep him, like give him a big leg sweep, knock him to the ground, and just boom, knock him clean out. And he got his foot caught in a bag. They were in the airport or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And literally, because of that, Steve was like, all right, I'll stop. And everyone was begging him, please stop, let a cooler head prevail. And just because of that, he was like, okay, I'll let a cooler head prevail. And then he managed to kind of just let it go. And not cause a big incident. But he was en route to delivering a serious Steve Blackman beatdown onto old big bully Bradshaw. I can't remember which wrestler it was. But someone who was there said that their experience with Steve Blackman's a physical prowess. They had they were convinced that if Steve Blackman had not tripped in that bag, he would have actually killed JBL. Like, just punched him up the nose. Nose goes into the brain. <laughs> JBL dies of an aneurysm. Yeah, I mean, all I'll say is, on the long list of people who you shouldn't bully in wrestling, and I would say that would be everyone, right at the top of that list, right in the point where you see Ken Shamrock and Dan <laughs> the Beast Severn, and maybe like Luna Vachon and stuff mm. like that, Probably don't go near Steve Blackman either. Yeah. Probably safer that I way. I would say do. Do it. But keep all the bags away. And no, go just... on, JBL. Try it now. Yeah, go on. I see you've had an appearance recently with the Hardy Boys. Why don't you go, go in there and try it? Finish what you started. What's the matter? You're not man enough. I hear you saying about getting in the business. Imagine that old man in the business disrespecting <laughs> the business. You better go try him. I bet you should go and try him. You know what, Joe? I will say one thing about JBL is that he has definitely been fascinating to talk about. Yeah. An interesting character study. He kind of echoes some other folks in wrestling, but I think he is quite unique at being a guy who I would think, if you asked him, would say, absolutely. I'm like Adam Cole. I turned the switch off. I'm no longer JBL. I'm John Layfield. (laughs) But I think he is probably more so than anyone as unreliable a narrator in his own experiences. Because I feel like he genuinely doesn't believe that he was ever this nasty guy or there was every kind of sort of a bleeding between the lines yeah, of those two things shows me just how nasty he truly is yeah that he can't look at his own actions and consequences and go yeah i was a piece of shit it's not as if he's not spoken about it he's spoken so much at length his statements podcasts interviews he goes on at one point he felt so like determined almost during the time of the morrow stuff to like really rewrite and be like no i'm not like there was some locker room hazing back in the day it doesn't happen anymore this isn't who i am but i feel like the guy is trying to convince himself as much as the paying audience but hey if you're a bully and the stuff like that is around you and you are what your peers make you to be you get a complicated legacy that's it i don't think you are you know he's he was allowed into the hall of fame and he's not you know he'll always be welcome back he's a wwe guy but you know should have fucking fired him they should have fired him that's the worst punishment so because that's the thing like he's okay being physically attacked because he that's his style what he wouldn't have been able to cope with is being 
fired. The loss of the position of power yeah. or whatever it Having is. Having that loss of income. Yeah. The, losing the respect of his peers. Well, you know, they can't all be CNBC, Joe. Unfortunately, the WWE is a lot more like Fox News than we probably want to admit. Which takes us on to the palate cleanser of our next episode of How To Wrestling. And I'm very excited. It's one of my all-time faves. Someone you've seen a couple of times on episodes recently and in the past. And I think someone you're pretty excited to learn more about. Joe, our next episode. It's not just going to be homicidal, suicidal, or genocidal. It's going to be a death-defying episode as we do How To Sabu. What do you know about Sabu, Joe? Not much. I know he's flippy. He is. I know he's covered in scars. He is. I know he's clumsy as fuck. <laughs> um, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a tough nut, isn't he? He's a tough nut, a hard Joe. ass. I wouldn't mind seeing him hard way, JBL. Jesus Christ! I, I don't think anyone would survive that one. But yes, <laughs> our next episode is going to be all about Sabu, the man who brought tables to the North American audience. Probably one of the most innovative genre creating wrestlers who i would say you could look at the dna of like 99 of modern wrestling and a lot of it comes back to sabu at least in a little bit i feel he is overlooked i feel people know the name but i don't think they know quite enough about him and i'm very excited to share the story of terry brunk from bombay michigan <laughs> all about sabu and i want to know about the hits the misses, the hardcore brawls, the death-defying spots, and the spots that nearly were but weren't quite. We have to look at the the whole encompassing Sabu experience, which is death-defying leaps and um, successful move-defying mistakes. I need to know the matches that Joe has got to see. I need to know your recommendations. I need to see him and ECW on see some FMW. Maybe we're going to talk a little bit about his famous uncle, the mysterious fireball-throwing wizard known as the Sheik. What I want is to know what he's like now. Because he's still he's still around, isn't he? He, he tweets is. occasionally. <laughs> he sure does, Joe. And I don't know really anything about him now. I want to know what person he has become. I mean, he is, a, he is a man who, even as he has spoken out in recent years, still has a good layer of old-timey wrestling mystery. Mm. There's something about Sabu that's always been fascinating. And I don't know about you folks at home, but as a wrestling fan, if I ever talk in wrestling with fellow fans and someone's got a Sabu story, my ears always prick up because those are the ones I want to know about most. So, you got any stories, any legends about Sabu? Don't forget the hashtag, HowToSabu. Keep it on HowToWrestling.com for any and all updates about episodes that are coming up. And you can see the match list and the recommended bonus viewing for all of our episodes. And if you want to support How To Wrestling, you get access to over a hundred pay-per-view reviews. As well as that, you've got our pay-per-view classic series. You've got Q&A videos from myself and Joe. And all other sorts of side ventures like the, the Big Show Show Show. And our special new Cody Rhodes retrospective, Roads To The Top. All this and more available for a mere $5 a month. Keep this 100% fan and listener supported at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling we've just had a new pay-per-view classic drop as well as cody rhodes bruise in a cell all that and the new AEW show available now we'll be doing forbidden door as well very excited a good time as always on the patreon thanks for backing us and thanks for listening to this episode until next time where we're going to be looking at some table break in action with sabu it's a goodbye from me kevin and a goodbye from me joe and we'll see you next time on how to wrestling see ya